Read one of New Zealand author Mary Jane Walker's informed and richly entertaining travel books, and the thirst for more adventures leads to searching for additional volumes. Grady Harp, Amazon Hall of Fame reviewer, from a review of A Maverick Traveler Anthology, the 20th of April 2019. Indian novelist Anita Desai has said, wherever you go becomes a part of you somehow. And so, Mary Jane Walker crisscrosses the globe taking a bite out of local life wherever she goes. Carol P. Roman, Amazon Review 5 November 2017 A Maverick Traveler is a straightforward, high-spirited account of the author's adventures traveling around the world, as she does everything from sail across the Pacific in a Chinese junk to go mountain climbing in the Alps. In between, and perhaps even more fascinatingly, it chronicles her involvement in New Zealand politics as both an activist and a politician. E.P. Clark, Amazon Vine Voice Reviewer 27 January 2018 to take a walk with Mary Jane Walker. In the tradition of Gertrude Bell, Freya Stark, Isabella Byrne and other adventurous women, Mary Jane Walker's relationship with the world is one of insatiable curiosity. She is driven to immerse herself in experience. I was happy to walk with Walker around the world, and was pulled in by her prose. Brooklyn Stoop Talk, Amazon Review, the 20th of April 2018. I'm a maverick. Always have been, and always will be. In the last three decades of international travel, I've spent two years naked on a Chinese junk, got so lost I ended up in Robin Hood's hiding place, drank hallucinogenic tea in the Amazon rainforest, and kicked a nuclear-powered submarine. That's just a fraction of the adventures that I have had. I have traveled the world, from the Arctic Circle to volunteering for the New Zealand Department of Conservation on an uninhabited island. The urge to explore is not just something that's in our minds. For some people it's really in us, deep within us. If you're crazy about cultures, new experiences, maps, exploring and finding the road less traveled, you're not alone. You're just like me. Embrace your inner gypsy. By giving in to the urge to travel you are on a one-way path to contentment. If you do travel, make sure to travel sustainably, with carbon offsets for flights, which means paying to have trees planted, and visiting places that are off the beaten tourist track in the off-season if possible. That's often a lot more enjoyable, and it's what I do. Some local councils in New Zealand have declared climate emergencies, though the New Zealand government hasn't yet done so. And make sure that you get all the relevant vaccinations and insurance. So, then, to my story. It begins with what I still think of as a defining point in my life, a voyage from Phuket to Gabon on a Chinese junk built at the instigation of one very determined young man. Neil Slutians. Chapter 1. Not all junk is junk. As a child, Niels had been obsessed with Chinese junks, the traditional-looking sailing ships that have been around since the early 2nd century AD. There had been a miniature replica of one on the table in his room in Paris. He had planned to build one since he turned 20. I remember him often looking at the miniature replica when I visited him later on. Niels' maternal grandfather had been the French ambassador to the United States. Perhaps that had something to do with the fact that the French government eventually sponsored the building of a junk at the Chinese naval dockyard in Guangzhou in 1979, with Niels on the organizing committee, L'Association Jonction 79. Nobody had built a traditional Chinese junk for over 30 years, and finding skilled laborers in what was essentially a lost art took some time. But eventually, in 1981, it was completed. La Dame de Canton, the Lady of Canton, was 25 meters long made of teak with cotton sails, 
bamboo battens and three masts, which in nautical parlance are the foremast, the mainmast, and the mizzen, rear or stern, mast. The boat was huge, in other words. And unfortunately, not entirely waterproof either, it used to leak periodically, and the deck let in the rain. The mainmast broke once, and the mizzenmast broke twice in rough seas throughout the voyage. There was a motor and a mechanic, and we were grateful to make use of both in emergencies. In 1981, the French state oil company Société Nationale Aquitaine, the word elf was short for essence et lubrifiance de France, that is, French gasoline and lubricants, sponsored a journey of more than 30,000 kilometers from Guangzhou to Paris, provided the boat was renamed Elf China, meaning Elf China. Along the way, the Elf China as it now was, would become the first Chinese junk ever to round the Cape of Good Hope. The junk would later be renamed La Dame de Canton after passing through one other name, and is now tied up on the River Seine in Paris as a floating restaurant under its original name. When we joined the junk in Phuket, in spite of all this sponsorship, the crew were out of money and were living off rice. My sister Marie and I gave them a donation of $180 and that paid for fresh fruit and vegetables for two weeks. We sailed to many places around Southeast Asia and beyond on Elf Chine, a whole host of wild ocean adventures. We partied in port. Several among the crew including Niels were musicians, so they'd sing Edith Piaf and play the grand piano, drums, saxophone and guitar until four in the morning. We'd make our own super strong sake, the traditional Japanese wine, and the crew would smoke lots of marijuana. I preferred to smoke Indonesian clove cigarettes, very aromatic and enjoyable, without side effects. We were baked and naked on a junk, far from oppressive societal rules. Our first trip on the boat was to Sri Lanka, which in those days was an island filled with backpacker hostels. It wasn't the international tourist hotel hotspot it is now. The trip was supposed to take two and a half weeks through the Andaman Sea in the Bay of Bengal. It took just over a month. For the most part the sea was calm, and everybody pitched in smoothly with three-hour shifts cooking, cleaning, and manning the boat. The crew on deck would vary between six and twenty-two people. When there were only six people on deck there was more room to move. Elf Chine was so big that it required a minimum crew of four on deck at any time, even in good weather, and six when things turned bad. The junk didn't have a steering wheel, just a three-meter-long tiller, helm, which needed two people to handle it. In bad weather nobody got any rest, when a storm hit it became exhausting and dangerous. Even when the boat was full, we were busy but it meant that we were covered when the sky crashed into the ocean, so to speak, or if someone accidentally set the boat on fire while cooking dinner. For the kitchen was tiny and cooking for so many people on a large six-ringed gas burner took some getting used to. Every time the boat swayed, the kitchen did as well. And everything on the burners slid off. During a storm it was impossible. But people still needed to eat to keep their strength up, so I persevered. One night, about halfway through the trip, a violent thunderstorm hit. It was so intense I didn't think the boat would make it through. The cotton sails were ripping in the wind, but we weren't able to fix them until the weather cleared. We were pretty much stranded in the middle of the ocean, in a storm, in a boat that leaked. Torrential rain is battering the crew on deck, the sails are billowing and breaking and I'm trying to cook something to feed twenty people. At least I was protected from the elements, but the kitchen felt like it was attached to a roller coaster. It was intense. While I was cooking there was a heave and the boat lurched to the side. The handwritten recipe slid onto the burner, caught fire, 
flew across the room and instantly attached itself to the teak wall, which must have soaked up too much grease because it erupted in flames. Fortunately, just as this happened, a crew member arrived at the door to grab a drink and was able to help me beat down the flames. The storm was bad enough, adding a fire at sea to the mix was more than enough excitement for one night. Eventually the storm passed. We fixed the sails, which always resulted in bloody fingers because of how you had to hold and stitch them, and we continued on our way. Boat life was tough. Money was constantly an issue and Chinese junks weren't made to sail too far from land. They're not ocean-going vessels so they get beaten up in deep water. Living conditions were cramped and no one spoke English. Boat life was tough. Money was constantly an issue and Chinese junks weren't made to sail too far from land. They're not ocean-going vessels so they get beaten up in deep water. Living conditions were cramped and no one spoke English. After a while I learned how to speak French fluently, which made a huge difference to how I was treated by the all-French crew. But there were upsides, the parties of course, the enjoyment of sailing when the weather was good, and an endless abundance of fish. Whenever we were bored, we'd put a line out and catch fish or sharks, which the crew would kill with an axe. It reminded me of when my mum used to work in a fish and chip shop in my hometown of Hastings, New Zealand. She'd batter and fry up shark, it was good fresh eating. We also had a dog on board called Jules, a beautiful Labrador. But sadly, she died a month into the trip after eating rat bait, shortly after we got to Sri Lanka. Fresh eggs were a plenty, chickens roaming the deck never failed to make me smile. One day a chicken fell overboard. One of the crew, Glenn, jumped in to save her but the rope tethering him, and the chook, to the boat broke and they both drifted away with the current. It was harrowing. We scoured the ocean for over half an hour and eventually, forty minutes into the search, we managed to find him, but he'd lost our meal. He said, if that ever happens again, I'm not going in after it. Fuck the chicken. Politically speaking, a lot of people on board were anarchists or refugees from a system they rejected. One was an anti-European Union activist who later tried to blow up the European Union Parliament building in Brussels and served time in jail for it. There was also a film crew from French TV4, doctors, lawyers, and various other professionals running away from mainstream society. There were many personality clashes. Even though everyone was essentially on holiday, it wasn't always relaxing. One whom I shall call Camille saw herself as the boss, mostly because she organized fundraising to keep the boat going. She thought very highly of herself, even putting down other original crew members, and Niels, during meetings. Our first stop in Sri Lanka was incredible. Intricately carved white stone temples, sandy white beaches teeming with wildlife, brightly colored Hindamandais, temples, lush tropical forests, deep green tea plantations hugging the soft hills and shops bursting with jewel-toned sari shops everywhere, it's a vibrant paradise. We hired a motorbike and spent a few days exploring the west coast of the country, zooming up to the highest point, Pijirutalagala Mountain, around five hours from the capital city, Colombo. Marie left the boat in Sri Lanka and, as much as I wanted to stay longer, we were off again, to the Maldives. What should have been an easy journey of around a thousand kilometers was extremely hazardous. Despite the problems on, and with, the boat, I felt safe with Niels as the captain. He was not only a very capable sailor with excellent navigational skills, he was able to easily smooth over any conflicts between the crew. He was the boat's peacemaker. Crew member Vincent Clouseau, 
who was one of the two original champions of the construction of La Dame de Canton along with Neil Spack in the late 1970s, helped promote the boat's adventures by inviting advertising and film crews on board. We were constantly bumping into cameras. I don't recall anyone ever writing a chapter in a book about our adventures on the junk. I believe that a video was made for a French television documentary and that a book or manuscript was rejected for publication in France, but that this is the first time a chapter about the voyage has actually been published. One of my strongest memories from this time is that we were always naked. It took me a while to get used to being unclothed around strangers, and I can't remember why we were always nude, but that's just the way it was. No one ever questioned it. Our meals on board were at times amazing. Another fellow voyager, Mary Budgeon, was an excellent cook, she was the type of person who could turn three old tins of beans and a can of soup into a gourmet meal. Even when we were running low on provisions, we never had to worry about eating bland, crappy meals, and with all the fresh fish we caught along the way we ate well. Our next destination was the tropical paradise of the Maldives. The Maldives were just like you'd expect them to be, stunning. Crystal clear waters teeming with colorful fish, empty glittering beaches littered with palm trees, and smooth soft gray boulders. I'd never seen such delicately colored rocks before, they looked like they were hand-painted. The Maldivian people were adorable. They're a predominantly Muslim nation that thrives on tourism, in a way that was genuine, friendly and beyond helpful. The locals helped us fix our boat and would do anything for cans of Coca-Cola. Coke was currency here, we could trade cola for chickens. Fortunately, we had cases of the stuff on board so instead of using money, we bought supplies with soda. Again, we weren't there long. What should have been a short trip to one of the Maldivian islands, Gan, was vile. Our fresh water somehow got mixed up with seawater. Then we ran out of food. Even though Mary could cook up anything she needed to start with basic ingredients, and all we had was rice and salty water. We all got sick and the seas were rough. Expending a lot of energy without boosting our body's reserves made for a very difficult time. Plus, we got lost in cloudy weather. Navigation in those days was by sextant, compass and chronometer. The only way to know where you were at sea was to make regular, timed observations of the angles of the sun and the stars, in ways that would have been completely familiar to Captain Cook. It was still few years before the coming of modern times in the form of satellite navigation. And so, Till the skies cleared we literally just floated around, hoping not to be driven onto rocks or a rough coast by the winds and waves and shipwrecked. Being lost on land is scary, being lost at sea is terrifying. The deck leaked so all our bedding got wet, and of course when you're in a storm there's no sunlight to dry everything out, either. We were not only scared but also hungry, cold, sick, wet, and tired as well. We eventually found our way to Gan, a desert island with an abandoned RAF airstrip. Even though no one lived there, which is the meaning of the phrase desert island, short for deserted, it was a meeting place for other voyagers. We met people from all over the world on Gan, all of whom were either anarchists or socialists. While we were there, Mary, the youthful mother and cook of the boat, and Jean-Louis Couder, the ship's mechanic and electrician and supervisor of its construction got married. Niels was their celebrant. In spite of all the other visitors, Niels and I tried to go ashore to spend a few days alone on Gan. Without a tent or anything to sleep under we had to make do. We found a piece of corrugated iron, which served as a roof, and we slept on the ground in a sleeping bag. Our romantic scheme was to catch fish and cook it over a fire. But every time Niels hooked one, 
A shark appeared out of nowhere and grabbed it before he could get it out of the water. Sharks love to devour hooked fish, an easy if unsporting meal. The struggles of the doomed creature somehow telegraphed to any patrolling shark that it cannot get away, and there was obviously no shortage of sharks near Gan. Even climbing coconut trees for fresh fruit was a disaster as we couldn't get up the trees. Climbing a coconut tree is one of those things more easily seen, than done. So, on an exotic desert island, we survived on canned fish that we could have bought at the supermarket at home. Despite the challenges, we were the happiest we'd ever been together, even when we realized that our sleeping bag was on a nest of scorpions. Elf Chine was pretty smashed up by this stage, already, so the crew decided to try and get it fixed at Diego Garcia, the largest of a group of islands south of the Maldives known as the Chagos Archipelago. Diego Garcia was a top-secret American military base, it still is. Though the Chagos Archipelago is part of the British Indian Ocean Territory, its heavy American presence suggests that both the USA and Britain have an interest in maintaining a presence there. Diego Garcia was home to the Chagossians, native people of the Chagos Archipelago who were forcibly removed when the base was constructed in the late 1960s. They've been trying to get their land back ever since and Vincent Cluzo started representing them after we left in 1982. Amal Clooney, actor George Clooney's wife, is currently suing the America government to return the land to the Chagossians. Certain members of the crew declared an emergency over the radio so that we would be welcomed into the port. Our problems were somewhat over-dramatized in order to make sure that the Americans would let us in. To be honest I wondered, even then, whether some people on the junk secretly wanted to film the military base as well. These days, there's not much that's hidden from Google Earth, satellite. But back then, Diego Garcia might as well have been on the moon. Its secret squirrel status undoubtedly piqued people's curiosity. The Americans were fantastic, they helicoptered food to us. Seeing hamburgers and other food lowered from a Navy chopper was one of the craziest things I'd experienced up till then. Actually, the Americans had done the same thing when the Elf Chine was in the South China Sea early in 1982 before I joined the crew, so they were probably keeping track of us too. I was very upset with the crew members who I felt had lied to the Americans, and to me. I didn't like being part of what felt like a conspiracy and there were tensions on board. Four crew members left, and one of the people who'd reported the emergency was the one who ended up being arrested years later for trying to blow up the European Parliament. Our next brief stop was Mauritius, a small though extraordinarily heavily populated island nation east of Madagascar. Independent from Britain since 1968, Mauritius has one and a quarter million inhabitants on a total land area of about 2,000 square kilometers. Thus, if you imagine Auckland, plus a bit of the surrounding countryside and the smaller Hauraki Gulf Islands, all cut out with a cookie cutter and relocated hundreds of kilometers out in the ocean, that is roughly what Mauritius is like. In Mauritius, we got raided. Our boat was searched for drugs and guns and, even though someone had a half marijuana, half-tobacco cigarette on the table under a stack of paper, they still didn't find anything. We were lucky. Some of the crew went and tried African marijuana which was super strong. I watched them smoke a tiny flake and they were high. The fear of being busted overseas was enough to make me stay away from smoking pot. Even if it was decriminalized in New Zealand, I wouldn't smoke it. We headed to South Africa to get the boat repaired. I got off the boat for three weeks to meet up with my father whom I hadn't seen for almost two years. After spending a few days catching up, we headed to the Kruger National Park. 
Standing in an open-roofed vehicle overlooking the African savanna teeming with giant creatures was surreal, like being in a movie. Giraffes and elephants seem to be twice the size you expect. Even zebras are monstrous. It was survival of the fittest, I guess. Being in South Africa at the height of its oppression, when I'd been such a fierce anti-apartheid campaigner, was sickening. Seeing whites-only signs was incredibly distressing. One of our French crew members, a black man, was kicked out of the local swimming pool because he was swimming in the white-only part. They told him that he was only allowed to swim at the other end of the pool in a tiny sectioned-off part with a sign saying non-whites only. As upsetting as that was, it was nothing compared to the disgusting racist conversations I overheard every day. Africana racism made New Zealand racism pale in comparison, it was the law after all. It made my skin crawl, especially in Johannesburg. Even going to the movie theater was revolting, Africanas almost having sex on the seats and shouting abuse at anyone on screen that was non-white. Cape Town wasn't as bad. If I'd had to choose one place to live in South Africa it would be Cape Town, at least it's a pretty city. Some of our crew started filming a documentary and invited anti-apartheid activist Alan Bozak on board. Years later, Bozak would be appointed by Nelson Mandela to represent South Africa at the United Nations in Geneva. Listening to Alan's stories was fascinating and utterly heartbreaking. That was still seven years before Mandela was released and eleven before he became president. Worried about the perils I was getting into, my father begged me to return to New Zealand. I decided to think about it, while still traveling of course. We left South Africa and began the long journey up the coast to Gabon, a small but lush French-speaking country on the west coast of Central Africa. Before we arrived it was foggy, and we had to use lights and our horn. After months of punishment at sea the mainmast broke, but luckily it did so only 30 nautical miles out of Libreville, the capital city and main port of Gabon. I had to jump overboard with other crew members to cut the cable holding the mast to the junk and secure it to the side. Luckily the water was calm. SNL Facquitaine, the French petroleum company that sponsored the journey, paid us some more money to film commercials off the oil rigs. They filmed the junk sailing past the oil rigs, they liked the contrast of old and new technology, I guess. They also invited us to a remote island off the coast for dinner. It was a bizarre evening, traveling to an abandoned house on an island in the middle of nowhere. I didn't feel comfortable going, but because there were around 30 of us, I figured there was safety in numbers. We arrived at the derelict farmhouse to find the patio filled with tables set for a silver service dinner, crisp white linen tablecloths. Elegantly dressed waiters and tantalizing gourmet smells coming from the kitchen. The meal was exquisite, duck drowning in rich velvety sauces, enough seafood to feed an army and beautiful wines from all over France. But the petroleum executives were rude, obnoxious and full of their own self-importance, ordering the waiters around, clicking and snapping their fingers for attention and constantly yelling, gas on, gas on. I started to get homesick, I'd been on the junk for two years. I was craving land and needed to get away from the friction on board following the Diego Garcia incident. The other crew were also beginning to miss their homes and families. Mary was pregnant so wanted to head back to Paris to have her baby. My mind was made up for me when Niels became very sick. He urgently needed an operation for a collapsed lung. We departed as soon as we could, saying goodbye to everyone and getting on the next plane bound for Paris. We landed in Paris and I met my Niels family including his mother Ariane and his grandmother Lilette, a colorful character. Ariane was a petite, classy, romantic woman. 
She'd had five husbands and had written a book about why women should have toy boys. Neil's paternal grandfather Charles was an arty gentleman, raised in a manor with servants. Charles Luttians joined a motorcycle club in New York in the 1950s, became a radical artist in the 60s and was now a charismatic patron of the arts. He occasionally still dabbled in art, but suffered from paralysis by overanalysis, so he never actually finished anything. He'd been working on a sculpture of Jesus' face for three years. We stayed with Neil's brother Paul and got fat on brie, wine and the deep sounds of underground jazz. The music scene in Paris in the 1980s was out of this world, the musicians, the décor, the trumpeters, the singing, it was a decadent period and I loved it. It made me realize how much I missed home and I decided it was time to go. After I left, the junk had a change of crew and journeyed to the United States and other destinations around the Caribbean, and was sold to its current owner in 1995 with the original association that built it still having a minority small interest. Since then, as I mentioned earlier, the boat has been tied up on the River Seine, serving as a restaurant and entertainment venue. Chapter 2 Maverick Beginnings I have always been a maverick, a renegade, a free spirit. I have been traveling since the age of four. Back then, it was usually to the local park 30 minutes away. Sometimes, I'd be accompanied by my younger brother and sister who might squash into a pram and drag along with me. My mother always knew where to find me. She'd just follow the footsteps in the frost. No one ever knew how I managed to navigate my way there, clearly I had a penchant for travel. At ten I joined the Labour Party. I'd been raised with a sense of social justice. My father was an anti-war activist and successful campaign manager for the local Labour Party in Hastings, and my uncle John once carried a pig's head on stick at a protest, to demonstrate his annoyance with the then New Zealand Prime Minister Robert Piggy Muldoon's policies. At the age of 11 I travelled by myself to Wellington with Halt All Racist Tours, H.A.R.T., a protest group that picketed visiting South African sports teams. I clearly remember being incensed by apartheid and racism as a pre-teen. So, I joined a local heart group and marched alongside adults protesting a visit by the South African softball team. It wasn't long before police started tapping the family phone. It was pretty common to have undercover listeners in those days. As a 12-year-old I started dressing creatively. I showcased my efforts every Sunday at church. I wore string around my feet instead of shoes, which I paired with a floor-length hippie dress and a crocheted headband tied around my forehead. In my fourteenth year I was determined to see Labour Prime Minister Norman Kirk's funeral procession. Kirk had died suddenly in office at the age of only fifty-one. I just had to see him. I'd always admired him. I was in Christchurch at the time of the funeral and the only member of my Hastings hockey team to brave the bad weather, even though it was pouring with rain. I was the only kid amongst a sea of adults paying their respects. When I was fourteen, I was expelled from my first of two schools. School 1, for getting involved in the abortion controversy. School 2, for delivering a speech on how communism and Catholicism are interrelated. Other children's speeches were of a lighter nature, like the differences between Marmite and Vegemite. On my 15th birthday I started work at the local freezing works. The day after my 15th birthday I stopped working at the local freezing works and became a vegetarian. The smell of bovine fear mixed with blood and urine was something that traumatized me for years. It was nearly a decade before I ate meat again. Fifteen was a big year for me clothing-wise, I discovered punk. My hippie dressing years were over. I had seven studs in my ears, one in my nose and wore a bright yellow jumpsuit, 
riddled with safety pins. At 16 I told my parents I supported the decriminalization of marijuana, and lit up a joint in front of them. They said nothing. I guess they thought it was one of the least damaging things I'd done at this stage. When I turned 17, I decided I'd never wear a bra, after reading Jermaine Greer's comments on how tight underwear symbolized male oppression. At 18 I became obsessed with Bob Marley, the music, his activism and his love of the bud. My friend Robin and I hitchhiked to Auckland to see him in concert. I wore my hair in bright green dreadlocks, decorated with silver milk bottle tops. Our experimentation with pot became common knowledge, we were busted smoking dope by my friend's parents in news coverage of the concert. To top off my last year as a child, I kicked a nuclear-powered submarine. I was with an anti-nuke organization protesting American nuclear-powered ships in our ports when I jumped on a protest boat, driven by none other than soon-to-be mayor, Tim Shadbolt. We headed out into the ocean to vocalize our displeasure at the United States nuclear ship Druxton and I got close enough to kick it. So, where did I get my moxie from? Hastings felt like a small town in the 60s. With a population of 23,000 there were really only two career options available, working with cows or working with fruit. Not the most exciting choices for a maverick in the making, it's no surprise I left Hastings as soon as I could. Growing up we spoke in a Scottish dialect, Dundonian. I just assumed that every other family spoke it too. I didn't realize that we were any different but we were. My mother was a Roman Catholic cum hippie who later became a Jehovah's Witness. A stylish, softly spoken teetotaler who loved animals and the outdoors, mum was the kind of woman birds would flock to when she strolled through the woods, just like St. Francis, a little bit, at any rate. She loved birds so much, she'd breed them and change their color by introducing natural dyes into their food. She was a speaker of Maori and rode a horse bareback. She was quietly adventurous. I definitely inherited the adventurous part. Incidentally, you might ask why I put a line above the letter A in Maori. This is a new spelling innovation which came in about a generation ago to render the spelling of Maori words more phonetic, and as far as possible I stick to it. The line on top, the macron, means that a vowel is stressed and lengthened, as if saying Maori, and to double the vowel is another way of indicating the same change in pronunciation, though less common these days now that the macron has come in. Some Maori words can have several meanings depending on whether a vowel is stressed in this way or not, as with tones in languages like Chinese or Vietnamese. Thus, the word atta can have three completely different and unrelated meanings depending on whether the first A is stressed, the second, or neither. But that is an extreme case and in general the issue is less critical in Maori than in languages that have a fully developed tone system. This also makes Maori less complicated to write in a romanized system than say, Vietnamese, since there is only one change to mark on the top of a vowel letter and not several. It was not until quite recently that Maori spelling reflected the issue at all. The spelling of Maori words on road signs, in official place names and most publications still does not include the macron. If I am quoting from a source that does not use the macron, including place names in current and common use without macrons, or people's names from the past, I will not bother to officiously correct such words, and risk getting them wrong, but just use them as I have seen them. All of my friends were welcome at our house because my mother always made everybody feel welcome. There was never anybody excluded, my mother was a very warm person indeed. Our house was always open to our friends. My Scottish father was a welder, democratic socialist, trade unionist and an avid association football, soccer, 
fan. He was somewhat swarthy in appearance in his younger days and figured that he had Spanish ancestry to account for it. Everybody in the wilder parts of Britain and Ireland can trace their ancestry to a shipwrecked sailor of the Spanish Armada, or so it seems, and Dad was no exception. He answered to the nickname of Arab or the Aberdeen Arab. Small town New Zealand wasn't particularly accepting of people with a non-definable look in the 1970s. Dad's appearance confused the locals, not to mention the distinction between Dundee and Aberdeen. His staunch anti-war views and political activism rubbed off on me from a young age. One of my earliest political memories was listening to Education Minister Phil Amos, we actually became besties later on in life when we were both on the Auckland City Council, and Maori Affairs Minister Matthew Rata, who years later gave me two hours of his time to discuss socialism. I was shocked by media perceptions of him, even as a 15-year-old I'd begun to see through the veneer of mainstream media. Matthew was an inspiring and intelligent leader, yet he was portrayed as a simpleton who couldn't read. I found it infuriating. My Uncle John was in the Boilermakers Union and knocked a guy out when he called him a pom. That was yet another ethnic slur in circulation at the time, for recent arrivals from Britain in this case, which some said was short for prisoners of Mother England. He was Scottish. Clearly, activism and adventure were in my blood. So, after finishing school or rather school finishing with me, I moved to New Zealand's biggest city, Auckland. Chapter 3 Rest homes aren't restful places. My first job was my worst job, cleaning toilets at a rest home. Sometimes I got to make the beds, a step up from being a bog botherer. I realized pretty quickly that I was not a nurse aide. Auckland gave me a crash course in a side of life I'd never have known in Hastings. I was staying with a friend from school whose parents ran a rather notorious pub at the end of Hobson Street. At that time, Inner city Auckland wasn't the cosmopolitan hub of cafe culture that it was later to become. It was run down and seedy and had a huge hard drug problem. The ambience of the area was reflected in the songs of gritty urban bands like Dragon, a reference to heroin, and Hello Sailor, a reference to something else, not to mention their names. The hotel I was living at, and I use the term hotel loosely, was where all the junkies, sailors drinking vodka with milk and pill-popping transvestites lived. It wasn't the fact that they were transvestites that bothered me, it was the pill popping. My mum used to grade apples in the orchards and would sometimes bring glamorous transvestites over for dinner, she loved the long, painted nails and fashionable denim skirts. I think she just liked being around beautiful looking people. So, that wasn't the problem. Every night I'd get home from work and literally run through the pub, down the long hallway and up three flights of stairs sometimes in the dark because the lights didn't always work, and into my room where I'd lock the door. Instantly. Even when I was safely in my room, I still felt unsettled, for the place seemed to be haunted as well. I felt that there were other people living there. You could hear and sense them walking around at night. I've always wondered whether the fact that it was reclaimed land made it spookier. My job at the rest home didn't work out. I was made redundant. I didn't see myself staying in the industry. I headed back to Hastings to finish my high school education and sit my university entrance exam, a year later than most. I sat it and passed it, and immediately hitchhiked back to Auckland to start my tertiary education. Chapter 4 Phone Taps and Lots of Scraps The 1970s was a frightening time in New Zealand. Under the authoritarian rule of Prime Minister Robert Piggy Muldoon, everyone in the Labour Party, Heart or nuclear disarmament movements in New Zealand was seen as a virus. 
In later years friends of mine had their police files released and were shocked to see the level of surveillance on all of us, photos at various protest marches over the years and complete transcripts of conversations. Disagreeing with the paranoid government meant in-depth interference, they weren't used to being confronted. Every time we protested, the Security Intelligence Service, SIS, would show up, always wearing yellow t-shirts and short blue shorts, the security service in stubbies, short shorts. The house I flattered in kept getting busted by the police, our house was searched every day for a month. Our household of student flatmates was known to the cops as being protest headquarters for anti-apartheid, anti-nuclear power and pro-abortion rallies, if there was a civil rights or social issue to protest, we were front and center. The CIS never found anything. I'm not sure what they were really expecting to find at a broke student's flat. We knew when our phones were being tapped because they'd ring randomly without anyone on the other end, and there was a clicking sound during phone calls. During a call we would sometimes hear random breaths and noises that interrupted our conversations. The protests over the 1981 tour by the South African rugby team, the Springboks, the largest and most disruptive of the time, served as a particular reminder that not all was well in Aotearoa, the Maori name for New Zealand, which is often used as an alternative, especially by those sympathetic to indigenous peoples. Members of other families were fighting each other over their viewpoints at the time of the 1981 Springbok tour, but not mine. My family were united in their opposition to the tour, and growing up as lovers of association football, soccer, not rugby fanatics, meant that we were one step removed from the sport altogether. The day of the tour my brother and I joined the Biko squad section of the anti-Springbok protest movement. During the protests each squad was named after a prisoner or famous anti-apartheid activist. The Biko squad was named after Steve Biko, an activist who had been beaten up by police while being detained in the South African city of Port Elizabeth in 1977. After Steve Biko started to get worse from his injuries, the police made the strangely ill-advised decision to drive him overnight to a prison hospital in the city of Pretoria, roughly a thousand kilometers away by road. And so Biko spent vital hours bumping around on the floor of a police Land Rover as it trundled all night through the rural back blocks of South Africa. Soon after arriving, he died. Tragic, callous, and at the same time memorably bizarre, the incident made world headlines at the time. A song about Steve Biko was included on Peter Gabriel's third album in 1980, it's still well worth a listen. We'd trained with wooden armor and helmets, ready for real confrontation. On the day, the police used their batons against people dressed as bumblebees, breaking collarbones and arms. My brother retrieved a baton, I wonder if he's still got it? In these protests things really did get quite disruptive and out of hand in ways that seem incredible now. I threw lit firecrackers at the police. Ironically the fact that the New Zealand police don't carry sidearms, that those were somewhat more innocent times and that we don't really have much a gun culture in New Zealand, we are like Britain in that respect meant that that wasn't alarming as it sounds, since everyone knew it was just firecrackers. Still, it shows that there is a pretty thin veneer of civilization at times, and that it is best not to put it under too much strain. If I might digress once more for a moment, this is a good opportunity to talk about what the lovely name Aotearoa means. The exact meaning of Maori place names is often mysterious, much as the origins of the name of an English village might not be clear either. In modern Maori means cloud, daytime or world, T in the middle of a word means bright, and roa means long. But also, Aotea is plausibly a contraction of Awate, meaning dawn. 
In some tales, the name comes from the first sighting of the looming landmass of New Zealand by the wife or daughter of the legendary explorer Kupi. This woman or girl is supposed to have called out Yao. Yao, a cloud. A cloud, from which comes the common, and very free, translation land of the long white cloud. The lexicographer Harry Orsman, among others, took the view that what Aotearoa really refers to is a quality of long dawns and long twilights in New Zealand's latitudes, compared to the tropics where the sun rises and sets suddenly. Firm proof that the name Aotearoa existed prior to the colonial period remains elusive. Captain Cook describes the North and South Islands as Ihainomoe and Toipunamu, or in more modern spelling Teikoe Maui, the fish of Maui, the same Maui as in Hawaii, and Tewaiponamu, the waters or place of Greenston, Jadeite, respectively. The 1835 Declaration of Independence of the United Tribes of New Zealand and the 1840 Treaty of Waitangi made use of Maori transliterations of the English words New Zealand in their Maori language texts and don't mention Aotearoa either. It seems likely that, as a name for all of New Zealand, Aotearoa arose in the 19th century as a sort of invented tradition of the sort that are often at the classic case of the invented tradition is the close and pedantic identification of specific Scottish tartans with specific clans. The tartan system only became completely cut and dried once popular encyclopedias and guides began to be written about clans and tartans in the 19th century. As a new name for the land of the Maori to compete with the name bestowed upon it by its European colonizers, Aotearoa certainly sounds better than the transliterations of New Zealand that were used in Maori to begin with, such as Nutirani. But even in the later part of the 19th century Aotearoa was often still only being used as an alternative name for the North Island, specifically. It took time to be generally accepted as applying to the whole country, and ironically enough it might be said that the final push came with the 1898 publication of The Long White Cloud, Aotearoa by the Christchurch-born social reformer and politician William Pember Reeves, a Pakeha or European New Zealander. The likely meaning of Aotearoa reminds me of a remark by J. R. R. Tolkien's friend and fellow author C.S. Lewis who wrote in his autobiography Surprised by Joy of an Imagined Subarctic Realm Free of Industrial Pollution, of Pure Northernness. A vision of huge, clear spaces hanging above the Atlantic in the endless twilight. Though it is much closer to the equator New Zealand still doubles for such a landscape today, whence the fact that this country served as a backdrop to movies made from Tolkien's fantasy books. And so I like to think that the word Aotearoa, even or perhaps especially if invented sometime in the 19th century by Maori nationalists now unknown along with its subsequent appropriation by Pakeha like Reeves, does refer to a sort of southerly analogue of Lewis's northernness, a forerunner of today's notions of clean green or 100% pure New Zealand. Getting back to my own story, I enrolled in Auckland University with the aim of doing law but quickly changed my subject when a professor said that by the time you've finished at law school you'll be able to fill these forms in without any help. I didn't want to study just so I could learn to fill out forms. The only good thing about university was meeting a man called Wu Zhaoyi, the first Chinese communist to be allowed to study in New Zealand. I met him quite randomly on campus one day and we developed a friendship. Everywhere we went, we got free meals. He'd introduce himself to the Chinese owners and there would never be any bill at the end of our meals, so I ate free for about six months. Wu and I went to see the Chinese football team play the All Whites in 1982. Even though New Zealand won the game and advanced to the 1982 World Cup, there was almost a riot when we left the grounds. All Whites fans were running around making slit-eye signs and shouting horrible racial slurs. 
I was disgusted and disheartened by the blatant racism. I didn't last long at university. Two months of it and I was bored. Bored of everyone protesting, ironically enough, I'd been doing it since I was ten years old and I needed a break. I dropped out of university, got a job and moved back into my friend's parents' place, the dodgy haunted hotel. I worked in the local and international exchange connecting calls and I loved it. The hours were long, but I loved the people I worked with and the money of course. I remember saving 9,200 New Zealand dollars in 18 months, in the currency of the time. That was amazing money to make for a 20-year-old without a degree back then. I could not wait to leave New Zealand. Like many New Zealanders, including many among the million or so New Zealanders who live overseas, I felt absolutely alienated and that I could not breathe free unless I was somewhere else. Looking back, this was surely another source for my wanderlust. I decided I did not enjoy the education system. I felt that my individuality was suppressed. I couldn't politically express myself either at school or through clothing without being ostracized. I was becoming an angry person and just frustrated with it all. I was sick of constantly watching rugby and seeing the national rugby team, the All Blacks treated like heroes when there were real heroes we should have been celebrating instead. I was tired of being followed around by the police and the security intelligence service. I was tired of everything. I'd had enough. I felt that New Zealand was a divided society to live in. I couldn't wait to go. So, I left New Zealand with my sister Marie. Chapter 5 Chow New Zealand Marie and I moved to Sydney, my first time overseas. I was desperate to have a break from New Zealanders. We settled in Bondi, not realizing that's where all the New Zealanders lived. It was just like being at home. On my 21st birthday I had a car accident on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and had to pay hundreds of dollars to fix both cars. Happy birthday to me. And then we decided to head to Darwin, the most northern city in Australia and one of the hottest. I got a job in the local casino. I had never done bar work before and I had to learn how, quick smart. I managed to get myself sorted within the first week and got paid very good money, but I hated it. The men would sometimes drink four dozen bottles of beer over weekend and even keep it up for longer. This was called going tropo, meaning they were affected by the tropical heat. They would say openly racist things like I'm going to run over a boong on the way home. Boong was a derogatory term the white Australians would use for the aboriginals, the native people of Australia. Darwin was a sad place. Lots of white men would bring aboriginal women to the casino and try to get them drunk. One time I got into trouble with my manager because I refused to give these girls alcohol because they didn't want it, they only wanted fizzy drinks. I remember the men were just trying to make them drunk so they would be less likely to refuse their sexual advances. It was revolting. While we were in Darwin, I made friends with some local aboriginal girls, they were all about the same age as me. We would talk a lot and they told me shocking stories of their childhoods. They'd been separated from their mothers when they were little because they were half white Australian and half aboriginal. They were only allowed to see their mums and families through wire fences, no physical contact was allowed. It was truly heartbreaking stuff. Most of them were put into welfare homes or adopted to non-aboriginal families. I remember thinking how absolutely awful that would have been for them. We got invited to watch them play the didgeridoo one night, a traditional aboriginal musical instrument. That was great to watch and we stayed for three hours. I became close friends with an aboriginal guy named Alan and was hauled into the manager's office at the casino. Apparently you weren't allowed to have aboriginal friends and work in the casino. 
I told the casino that if they were going to dictate who my friends were they could get fucked. And I left. My sister and I decided to get out of Darwin and go into the outback. The outback of Australia is really remote, untainted by people and full of life. It was teeming with lizards, crocodiles, kangaroos and birds. And bugs. There were hundreds of them. The cockroaches were the size of small mice. I hated them with a passion, love the outback, hate the bugs. We had met some other travelers from Greece and Italy, so they came with us out to Kakadu National Park. We were told we had to look out for crocodiles in the water. But of course, we went and swam in swimming holes we shouldn't have. One day while we were mucking about on a small boat and toboggan, we saw something lurking around in the water not that far away from us. The splashing and noise had sparked the interest of a three-meter-long croc. I was scared, but luckily, we were still far enough away to be able to make a quick exit. My experiences in Darwin ruined my impression of Australia. The bugs were revolting. I don't want to live in a country where the cockroaches are as big as mice, even if the country does have incredible seafood. We decided that a round-the-world trip was the best option, so off we went. A maverick Australian way. Subsequent visits were to show me a more flattering side of Australia. You can read about them in my forthcoming book A Maverick Australian Way, as well as blogs that I've done on my website, amaverick.com. I've travelled all round Australia now, and have plenty more to say about the parched island continent which the British took over in order to found a penal colony, and where the modern population clings to the coast, for fear of getting frazzled. For all its rural reputation, Australia proves to be a land of thrilling cities. And I discover that although the original inhabitants of Tasmania were all supposed to have been wiped out, 20,000 people are recognized as having Aboriginal descent. Chapter 6 Magic Vegetables in Indonesia Balinese people are beautiful, personality-wise and looks-wise. But the country, in those days, was full of drugs. On the trip with my sister we found that you could get magic mushrooms in omelettes, in soups, in salads, even in your vodka. Everyone was eating, or drinking, something hallucinogenic in Bali. Being young and adventurous, Marie and I tried some of these mushrooms, and we hallucinated so badly that she wanted to become a nun. I had to spend about six or seven hours calming her down. She spoke in tongues and was speaking in a weird language, it sounded like Thai to me. My mother and grandmother could speak in tongues, but I always thought they just sounded drunk. So, I've seen first-hand people speaking in tongues in a religious and hallucinogenic setting. I was amazed at the Hindu culture there. As we walked around the streets, we had to be watching our step. The Balinese would place all these little offerings on the footpaths, flowers, crackers and even cigarettes. I didn't want to offend anyone by stepping on one. Mosquitoes were a big problem in Bali. The Balinese people told us that if you drink black tea it would keep them away, apparently. It's a natural repellent. After that, my sister and I met a group of men from Jakarta who were students. They loved Phil Collins and they were playing songs from his album, Yes. We had a great time with them and singing along to Mr. Collins. Marie and I left Bali and flew to Medan in the north of Indonesia. Tourists were a rarity here. Medan was underdeveloped and unable to accommodate visitors. As we didn't speak the language, we were playing hit and miss with ordering food. That ended badly. I remember thinking that the beef I'd ordered tasted old and tough. What I didn't realize is that we were eating an animal that was a pet in a lot of New Zealand homes. It was only afterwards that I double-checked what we'd ordered from the butcher's window. Sure enough, it was a dog jaw. 
It made me feel sick. And then it made me actually sick with dysentery. If you've never had it, be very thankful. I lost 9 kilos in weight in under a fortnight. It was a seriously shit time. The men here thought that rubbing strangers' breasts was okay, so I felt very unsafe. I'd never been groped so much before. Our accommodation in Medan was hideous, dirty, dark, dingy hallways and prison cell-sized dorm rooms filled with cockroaches. No wonder it only cost $1 a night. It wasn't a really safe place to travel in. Medan was memorable, but not for good reasons, leaving was the only option. It might be quite different now, of course. Central Java had a completely different vibe. The stunning ornate stone temple at Boabudur, from the 9th century, took me instantly to a bygone era. Having grown up in the Catholic Church this was a very different form of worship for me. Especially as there were thousands of bats hiding amongst the ruins, fruit for the gods at every corner, incense sticks burning and the remnants of recent chicken sacrifices. I loved this area so much I stayed for three months. I moved into a flat with a friend of a friend who was in a rock band and was chauffeured around by a driver that my friend shared with the Japanese ambassador. They were fun times. Except for being mistaken as a prostitute everywhere I went. In those days, white women were seen and treated like they were hookers. Whenever I went out with my friend Tony, men used to approach him asking if they could have a turn with me. And because we were driving around with a chauffeur, they thought I could just service them in the car. But it wasn't just my skin color that drew stares and comments. Marie used to attract crowds because she had lots of joined-together freckles on her face. Children used to try and swipe them. Even if we were zooming past them on a moped. I went back to Bali a few years later on my own, and it was then that I met my good friend Ina. It is quite a funny story actually. We met each other while out exploring one day, two young ladies out on an adventure, it was all a lot of fun. We stayed in this one hotel and the manager there thought he could try and hit on us. He harassed us to no end to get into bed with him, to the point we weren't going to stay there anymore. We were so disgusted, so before we finally left, we thought we'd play a little trick on him. We found a condom and filled it with shampoo and left it on the bed and then promptly left the hotel just to piss him off. We still laugh about it even to this day. When I was in Medan with Marie, Tony asked me to marry him, but he was a Muslim and I was expected to convert to that religion. I wasn't sure that was my cup of tea. That was my cue to leave Indonesia to the next destination. Chapter 7 mm, Malaysia We flew from Jakarta to Singapore. I loved how modern and clean Singapore was. A completely welcome experience considering the ones Marie and I had just had. We only spent a couple of nights in Singapore. I had planned to do a tramp through a national park in Malaysia. So, s we caught the next flight to Kuala Lumpur. I grew up outdoors and I'd always loved tramping. My mother used to take me to all the national parks when I was a kid. So, the prospect of tramping in the Malaysian jungle was beyond exciting. I'd arranged to be part of a 30-day excursion staying in small tramper-style huts. We had to carry our own food and backpacks, which for 30 days was quite a heavy task. Tramping in the Malaysian National Park of Taman Nagara is quite different to where I was from in New Zealand. For a start, I'd never had to contend with leeches, which I learned to burn off with lit cigarettes. The indigenous people in this area, known as Orangasli, taught us to cover our bodies with tobacco to prevent ticks and other bugs nestling in. Most tourist trampers were day walkers, so being the only New Zealander in the jungle was a novelty. 
but nothing compared to seeing tiger footprints in the jungle or learning Malay, which is related to the New Zealand Maori language. We spent our nights under the tree canopy singing and dancing, learning the traditional Malay dances. Penang was next on the list and after an eight-hour bus ride in humid conditions I couldn't wait to get there. But that anticipation was short-lived. All the other guests retired to their hotel rooms in the evenings with lit candles. I couldn't work out why as the power seemed to be on. I asked the owner and, though he was reluctant to tell me, I badgered him. He opened. Up. I instantly wished that he hadn't. The other guests are heroin addicts and they use the candles to melt the heroin in spoons. Excuse me? I was above and beyond shocked. I'd heard about the drug culture in Penang. A mother and son drug smuggler pair, Lorraine and Aaron Cohen, had recently been arrested and sentenced to life in prison in Penang. I could never have imagined that it would be so brazen and in my face. I saw a junkie inject heroin into his ankle, then his eye. He then asked if I wanted any, but I said no and ran in the opposite direction. To lighten the mood, I decided to play a prank on the guests. So, the next day, I bought some plastic poo in a shop and put them all over the chairs in the hotel. People would come in, sit down, see the poo, be disgusted and then move. Marie and I were laughing about it, when I noticed a beautifully dressed Frenchman walk into the room. He was the most stunning person I had ever seen in my life. He looked at me and smiled. I could feel the redness of a blush all over my face. Here I was holding a plastic poo, not the sort of thing you want to be holding when you see the most attractive man you've ever seen, laughing hysterically and probably looking completely ridiculous. It didn't deter him though, Niels Lutyens and I fell in love. Almost instantly, Niels invited Marie and I to sail with him, and his sister, to Thailand. So of course, we did. Chapter 8 Naked Body to Local Body Arriving back was surreal. I had been away from home for three years and for most of it has been on a Chinese junk full of naked people. At this stage of my life I had no career to speak of, so I decided to enroll in a journalism course. Soon after finishing my diploma, I did a placement at the Fukatane Beacon, a local newspaper based in the east coast of the North Island. I did not realize that the former manager of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team was the owner. I didn't last there long. My first story was an anti-Springbok piece and my intellectual freedom was compromised. I moved to the Thames Star, where my first piece was about how disenfranchised Maori couldn't practice their culture. My voice wasn't appreciated there either and so after only three months, I left. So, I headed to Auckland. I'd only been back in New Zealand for just a few months and I'd already moved twice. My second time at the University of Auckland was a welcoming experience, unlike my first time. I loved learning, and I loved studying New Zealand politics and the 1840 Treaty of Waitangi, by which New Zealand was first established as a British colony albeit with some restrictions on the right of the settlers to run roughshod over the Maori, restrictions that soon came to be ignored, for an eventual Bachelor of Arts with honours, after which, I would go on to do a master's degree. Being familiar with Maori gave me an edge when it came to studying the treaty. I wasn't studying with a job in mind. I just wanted to learn about New Zealand and, as university was free back then, it didn't require a heavy financial outlay. It makes me sad that education costs so much nowadays, with students racking up tens of thousands of dollars for a tertiary education. Where's the incentive to study politics, or anything else that doesn't lead immediately to a meal ticket, if you have to pay for it? 
I worked full-time throughout my degree in order to make ends meet. I door-knocked for market research companies, cold-called for telemarketing firms, and had a summer job working in the university gardens. I met David and Hilary Shackleton, relatives of the famous Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. There's an old cliché that all New Zealanders are in some way or another descended from explorers, either from Captain Cook or from the legendary Maori navigator Kupi. In David's case it was almost literally true. The Shackletons were stalwarts of the local Labour Party, high-minded Christians that tried to convert those around them. We were good friends, but they were unsuccessful with my conversion. While studying and working in odd jobs I lived in Western Springs, in a renovated garage near the Auckland Zoo. The neighbours would regularly bring over cooked meals, steak, potatoes, stews and lots of spinach. They took pity on me for being a broke student and, being a broke student, I was grateful for the free food. My parents moved to Thames, a small coastal town in the Coromandel region of New Zealand. It was only about an hour and a half's drive from Auckland so I spent a lot of time with them, but things there had changed. Unemployment in the region was rife, especially amongst Maori. It seemed that the David Longy-led Labour government had a hidden agenda of privatising education, health and the railways and introduced user pays in education, along with massive layoffs in a whole range of industries and public services. They sold the Bank of New Zealand, BNZ, which in my view was a major ripoff. It wasn't the New Zealand I knew, that's for sure. Even so, I joined the Prince's Street branch of the Labour Party in 1988, where I met David Shackleton's son Brian. We ended up spending many years together in a relationship. Buying our first home together, which I eventually owned outright. Little did I know that buying a house would end up sending me down a different career path in later years. A seven-bedroom house in Kingsland soon ended up being worth a lot of money, and once I was on the investment property ladder, I never really had to work again. For someone so steeped in social concerns this was an ironic turnout, but to be quite frank, this is the only kind of enterprise that New Zealand society rewards. Being surrounded by Shackleton's re-energised me into making a difference. So, I stood for the Auckland City Council in 1992, the same time I finished my master's degree in politics and history. By that stage the Labour government had collapsed, the Labour Party itself splitting into three factions, one of them the left-wing New Labour Party. My 1993 thesis on the formation of the new Labour Party was controversial due to its claims that laissez-faire ideologies had permeated the politics of the Labour Party, and that Helen Clark, who became Prime Minister under a later Labour-led coalition government and then went on to prominence at the United Nations, had been a fence-sitter for refusing to vote against the sale of the BNZ. I had hoped for it to be published as a book, but this never happened. Actually, it's hard to get anything published in New Zealand where the market is small. The author of A Classic History of New Zealand, Keith Sinclair, used to say that some of the best work on New Zealand history was to be found in unpublished theses, so maybe I am in good company. In place of the Mount Albert City Council there was now the Mount Albert Community Board and between 1992 and 1995 the board had a majority of Alliance members, though it didn't have much real power. Frank and I were on the board as well as on the council. The only other non-alliance member of the board was Ray Cody, a retired sports broadcaster and founder of Grey Power, a lobby group for pensioners. Being on the council was hard yakka, that is, hard work. I fought to stop native trees from being cut down and saved many throughout Auckland. I helped get glyphosate weed killer banned from residential streets, the council used hot water thereafter, 
which is a much safer option. I was on the arts committee too, working against, instead of alongside, conservative arts patrons who treated me like a child was mentally draining. The Hero Parade was a protest in support of the gay rights movement in New Zealand, a local version of the Sydney Mardi Gras. The Arts Committee vehemently opposed any festivals or parades promoting gay pride, so there were lots of arguments. Deputy Mayor David Hay was a born-again Christian who led the resistance against the Hero Parade. I openly defied him by marching in the parade myself. I'm pretty sure I was the first councillor or politician to have done so. I leaked confidential minutes to the media, because I believed the public had a right to know how their money was being spent, particularly on projects like the Outeir Centre. This was, and is, a dismal 1980s corporate convention centre not far from the aforementioned 1970s police station. A similarly fortress-like facade and generally inward-focused nature helps to ensure that not much ever happens in the adjacent Outeir Square, a windswept parade ground which could have been a much livelier sort of public space if the council had ever had any sensitivity about such things. In the Alliance we also stood against further motorway expansion, the sale of community housing, and the sale and expansion of the Auckland port. We wanted to make sure the Auckland waterfront was there for the people of the city to actually use. An expansion of dredging was never an option. It would kill our snapper and we wanted to preserve our harbour. I was on the council's property committee, advised by the very knowledgeable economist Gareth Morgan, he predicted the current housing crisis. When I was on the council, I reacquainted myself with Chris Trotter, the Dunedin-based left-wing political commentator and editor of a magazine called Political Review. I loved his magazine, it provided a degree of analysis that I think is sadly missing in today's society. The contributors were fantastic. Dash they were usually from the left of course, people like Keith Locke and the late Bruce Jessen, with whom I spent many afternoons speaking while I was at university. Chris moved up to Auckland in 1998 and I remember showing him around the underground music scene in Auckland. We spent hours on Karangahape Road listening to live music, anything from young rappers to female singer-songwriters. The 1990s was an exciting time for music. We had access to sounds from every genre. I'd always been a fan of New Zealand music, from the intelligent mixture of punk and funk music of split ends, to the soulful and folksy sounds of Tumanako Prince Tuiteka and the Maori Volcanics show band. Prince Tuiteka himself used to date my neighbour in Hastings. He would often show up with his white station wagon, embellished with carvings. When I lost my re-election bid by about 20 votes in 1995, I was frankly relieved. I'd poured everything into the job and after a three-year stint I was burnt out. People thought I would be interested in a parliamentary career, but I wasn't prepared to make the sacrifice, and I didn't want to work in a job where you were damned if you do, damned if you don't. Parliamentarians aren't really given any respect and as long as politicians are despised, you'll find that many good people are discouraged from running for parliament. I did go to one bitter contest for selection, everyone was at each other's throats arguing and behaving like apes. I'd had enough. It's not surprising that the travel bug bit again and I took off overseas. Chapter 9. America. I was nervous about going to the United States. I had a skewed opinion about their politics after all the anti-nuclear protesting I'd done over the years. But I always liked to challenge my own perceptions of things, so thought an extended trip to America was needed to really learn about the country and its people. Venice Beach in California is often described as the perfect place for people that love the hippie era. For me, a former hippie and avid rollerblader, 
It was heaven, the best people watching spot ever. You'd see an eclectic mix of crazy characters from dreadlocked men on skates playing guitar, to the flower power brigade wandering around in crocheted miniskirts giving daisies to strangers. Eccentricities are alive and well here. In the state of California, you could only get state-funded welfare benefits for two years, it's why there are so many homeless people. I even saw some homeless men on Venice Beach playing a grand piano during the day, then sleeping under it at night. Because there's not much rain there it was still in tune, even though it was sun damaged and faded. I chose to do a bus tour, one that included Compton just south of downtown Los Angeles, the focus of rap songs and riots, including the great uprising triggered in 1992 by the beating of the taxi driver Rodney King by four white cops with batons, in what should have been a fairly routine traffic stop in the suburb of Lakeview Terrace some 40 kilometers to the northwest, which also tells you how big and sprawling Los Angeles is. Footage of the violence, all 12 minutes of it, was sent to a local TV station showing the world that the police's poor treatment of minorities wasn't just something that happened during segregation in the 1950s. It was true that King had been pulled over after a chase and had been drunk and obnoxious. For that reason, the police officers were acquitted of using excessive force. Still, even the then U.S. President George H.W. Bush said that, in company with some civil rights leaders he was meeting with, he had been stunned. As were my wife Barbara and the kids by the contrast between the unprofessional conduct shown in the video and the acquittal of the officers, who are supposed to be trained to deal with every kind of situation. If you watch the video it's hard to believe that lying on the concrete being almost beaten to death by four cops, while another four stand by watching, wasn't anything less than excessive force, the product of a double standard. After all, nothing like that ever happened to Mel Gibson when he was pulled over in a drunk and obnoxious state more recently, nor would it have likely happened back then. But then he is Mel Gibson, and not just some anonymous black guy in 1992. And so, racial tensions in the city erupted. During the 1992 Los Angeles riots more than 50 people were killed, over 2,000 were injured and around $1.1 billion worth of damage was caused through looting and arson. But as informative and moving as that bus tour was, public buses were a different situation. Public transport at that time was dreadful in Los Angeles. The buses were so run down and stinky that when it was hot and smoggy outside, it was even hotter and smoggier inside. I hear LA public transport is a lot better now, so, I hired a car. Learning to drive on the other side of the road, and of the car, took some getting used to. But I got the hang of it. So much so, I drove to Vegas. Las Vegas. The four to five hour road trip north of Los Angeles to Nevada is stunning, flat expansive deserts, craggy pink and red mountain ranges and long straight roads, so different to New Zealand's windy paths through the country. Even though the Mojave Desert looks completely different to New Zealand I noticed one similarity, which is that it has the same volatile weather as Auckland. One minute there's a thunderstorm and the next the sky clears and the sun burns down. Five minutes later my windscreen wipers are on again. I never expected to see four seasons in one hour in my first American desert. It's no wonder I got a little lost and confused. So confused I ended up on the wrong side of the road and a policewoman saw me. As she was writing out a ticket a motorcycle gang appeared out of nowhere, about six heavy men with ZZ top style beards. They started hassling the cop, telling her to cancel the ticket. Being the only females we both felt threatened. To defuse the situation, I started telling the bikers that I didn't mind paying the ticket because it was my first one in America. Eventually they left, 
but being in the middle of nowhere with a gang intimidating a female cop was something I'm not keen to repeat. The building of the Hoover Dam and the legalization of gambling in 1931 turned Vegas from a nondescript desert town into a bustling hub for engineers and construction workers, eventually expanding into the party city it's become today. Vegas doesn't have any hostels because the hotels are so cheap, I was able to get a comfortable room for $15 a night. Hoteliers make their money in Vegas from the gambling floor, which brings in many billions of dollars a year. It's not surprising that six of the world's biggest hotels are in Vegas. I made a lifelong friend in Vegas, James. A short Irish man whose weight fluctuated between extreme sports super fit and chubby, James had just broken up with his girlfriend and was mending his broken heart in Sin City. Women loved him, they were always throwing themselves at him, but he was too lost to welcome any of their advances. We drove to the Grand Canyon together and nothing prepared us for the intensely moving spectacle of seeing it for the first time. It was a photographer's dream, an immense red-rocked gorge with crystal blue water running through it. It was truly breathtaking. Driving back to Vegas as the sun was setting was incredible. There is something about desert dust that makes the sunsets even more magical than they usually are, it seems to amplify the red and orange colors. One day we hired a red vintage Corvette and drove to the iconic Flamingo Hotel and Casino, built by infamous mobster Bugsy Siegel, one of the first casinos to be built in Vegas and still running today. He named it after his girlfriend at the time, Virginia Hill, a dancer known as the Flamingo because of her long red hair and even longer legs. Apparently, the presidential suite there has a secret ladder and tunnel system down into the underground garage so Bugsy and his mates could escape undetected if necessary. It's one of the most famous landmarks in Vegas, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. all performed or filmed movies there. Vegas is busy. And hot. We wanted to go somewhere cooler and calmer, and decided to head to San Francisco. I stayed with a friend's daughter there, a cat-loving woman called Angelica. She told me that cat ownership laws there are really strict. You have to keep their claws clipped to prevent them killing local bird life and you have to control where they go, much like dogs in New Zealand. Most cats are kept indoors, if you've ever had one you know that they're wanderers. Angelica welcomed me to her city. She put on special dinners and lunches with her good friends, her hospitality was amazing. She showed me around the markets and took me to handfuls of jazz clubs. Even though I'd come here to escape the heat of Vegas it was still sunny. So sunny that my lips got badly burnt. Walking around with sore blistered lips is never a good look. Angelica took me to Napa Valley, the district known for its rolling hills and vineyards, and it didn't disappoint. I never realized that California produced such beautiful wines. We were there on the 4th of July, America's Independence Day, and I got caught up in the patriotic excitement. Every business and vineyard was flying the flag and it gave me a completely different view of what America was like, in contrast to my preconceived political reservations. The sense of patriotism is beautiful, it's so unlike New Zealand. As much as I loved San Francisco I found the number of oil rigs off the coastline disconcerting. I hope that never happens to New Zealand. James left San Fran to head back to Ireland and I flew to New Orleans. New Orleans Visiting the birthplace of jazz was always going to be memorable for me. I love jazz. And New Orleans didn't disappoint. It's an incredible blend of French colonial, Spanish and Creole architecture with a delicious dollop of African culture thrown in. The diversity was surprising and inspiring. 
I was annoyed that it had taken me so long to go to the United States, I'd allowed myself to be indoctrinated to dislike an entire nation based on their nuclear stance. I was delighted that my views had changed. I was on a tight budget, so I stayed in a cheap hostel for seven nights. It's a thriving city, full of parties, amazing food and festivals, most famously the annual Mardi Gras. I decided not to drink while I was there because I didn't want to be part of the binge-drinking culture that seemed to permeate the city. And I'm glad I didn't, and kept my wits about me. There were some nutters in the hostel. An Australian woman Karen had a scam going. She'd accuse other guests of theft and was making weekly insurance claims for lost items. She also slept with half the hostel. I learnt about voodoo in the hostel. A guest I met carried around a voodoo doll and said that whenever she was angry with someone she'd stick a pin in it, and bad things would happen. She believed in the power of it, so I made sure to stay on her good side. Even though voodoo originated in Haiti, it became popular in New Orleans in the 1800s because of Marie Laveau, known as the Voodoo Queen. She had around 12,000 followers of all races, and even today her graveyard is a big tourist attraction. The name on my passport is Mary Jane, yet I had recently found out that the name on my baptism certificate is actually Jenny. Mum and Dad must have changed their minds somewhere along the way from birth to baptism. Anyway, it was great because in New Orleans it is very common to have two names as one. Everyone called me Mary Jane and didn't try to shorten it to just Mary or Jane. It was very normal there. Bourbon Street is the heart of New Orleans and I was lucky enough to see a Dizzy Gillespie impersonator perform in a tiny, smoky, 50-seat venue. He was in his 70s at the time, but he played like a 30-year-old. I love live music but seeing him perform was unlike anything I'd ever seen. He was a masterful musician, his cheeks puffed up like a chipmunk as he blew his horn. The following night I ended up at a smoke-free jazz venue watching a 95-year-old musician head to the stage with a walking stick in one hand and a trumpet in the other. The House of Blues was another highlight, they're a socially responsible venue that feeds the homeless and supports young and local musicians. The stage has a box of Mississippi mud underneath it so that everyone who plays can be grounded to the roots and the spirit of the area. The Creole-inspired menu and music there was incredible, if you're ever in New Orleans, go there. The atmosphere of the room alone will feed your soul. New Orleans is such a blend of cultures and friendliness mixed with steel string guitars and soaring temperatures. After visiting here, I could see similarities between popular musicians, both Sheryl Crow and the Red Hot Chili Peppers both have that swampy sound. Memphis, Tennessee Memphis is the artistic birthplace of notable musicians like Aretha Franklin, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Otis Redding. But its most famous export is the king, Elvis Presley, who started his music career as a teenager there in 1954. His wife Priscilla was only 14 when they met, but even though they were holidaying together at the age of 17, she says in her best-selling autobiography Elvis and Me that they didn't have sex until her wedding night, when she was 22. I love Elvis's lyrics. I had a good look around Graceland. I saw the batik-style room with the black piano where Elvis wrote his music, the pink Cadillac, and all other memorabilia. New York, New York. I don't like late flights into a city. By the time I land and bus into the destination I'm exhausted. But arriving in New York was surprisingly pleasurable, even though it was midnight. The hostel I'd arranged to stay at was run by a charming Irish man who picked me up at the bus stop. I wasn't expecting New Yorkers to be so accommodating, again another example of my own preconceptions. 
He told me he could get me a green card for around 100 US dollars that would give me the right to live and work there. He had a side business counterfeiting them. When I said no, he offered me a job with a female-only furniture moving company. I was just there to travel around, not live and work there, so I declined that too. He wasn't the only interesting person I met at the hostel. I became hostile buddies with a struggling 21-year-old rapper who was always chasing Swedish girls. He was pretty sure he was going to make it big one day and, sure enough, seven years later in 2003 I started reading reports of a rapper who'd been shot nine times hitting the top of the charts around the world. His name was 50 Cent. I'd always admired President Franklin D. Roosevelt's wife Eleanor, she was a powerhouse of a woman and an activist committed to civil rights, women's issues, abolishing child labor and raising the minimum wage. She helped shape New York when her husband was governor and the United States of America when he became president. Being in New York for the first time was overwhelming. Seeing all the iconic buildings we've come to know through movies and television is incredible. And I'm glad I got to experience the city before the terrorist attacks in 2001. I loved going through Times Square in Midtown Manhattan. I imagined seeing Woody Allen wandering around, because all of his films were set there. I'd actually seen all of his films and was a huge fan until he married his stepdaughter. The Statue of Liberty moved me. I was impressed by the philosophy of America's independence from the United Kingdom and the commitment to freedom, progress, and a rough if obviously imperfect kind of equality. The Empire State Building shocked me. Mostly because I was robbed while staring up at it. Two men unclipped my money belt and raced off with everything, my credit cards and money. I was glad I'd left my passport in the hostel that day. But then being robbed did mean I got to experience the NYPD. I'd seen them on TV and read about them in many books, but walking into the station and meeting actual officers was beyond exciting. And they were happy to meet a rare Kiwi. I sorted out the credit cards on the spot, they were so helpful, but even though it was a pain it resulted in a truly authentic New York experience, one you can't pay for, unless you consider the lost funds as payment. The Guggenheim Museum made me fall in and out of love with Picasso in one visit. Seeing so many of his works of art in person blew my mind. But the section of the museum that showed twelve of his paintings all in a row showing his former wife and mistresses in various stages of despair repulsed me. I thought it was sick to depict the women in his life as emotionally crippled tortured souls. I turned off him for life. 1996 was the height of public awareness and media reports of the AIDS epidemic. I even saw a musical about it on Broadway. Rent was the story of a group of poor artists and musicians, some of which were HIV positive, trying to make a living in New York's East Village, which had been a creative but impoverished community in the 1980s. Rent was a very successful musical, its 12-year run on Broadway netted more than $280 million. Sadly, its creator, Jonathan Larson, had died of a ruptured blood vessel on the day of the first performance but at least he saw it accepted for production. The porn industry in New York was blossoming, everyone in the hostel was watching porn around the clock and it made me uncomfortable, especially as so many people were dying of AIDS. I loved America, and I wasn't expecting to. I learned so much about the people and the places I'd been. It was interesting to see how different it was to New Zealand and how inaccurately it had been portrayed in the media. I know now that the political appearance of a country does not reflect its people. But it was time to leave. And Ireland was a calling. A maverick USA way.
I returned to the USA toward the end of 2016 and was there for the elections that pitched Donald Trump into the White House. While riding the Amtrak rails one and a half times around the lower 48 states, I also made it to Hawaii. You can read all about these adventures in my fifth book, A Maverick USA Way. I visited cities and national parks, such as Birmingham, Alabama, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Chicago, and national parks such as Glacier National Park in Montana, and Yosemite National Park in California with its epic rock faces and redwoods, via Yellowstone and Grand Teton. I narrowly missed being growled at by a grizzly bear, and walked around Detroit, the city that's turning into a park thanks to white flight, and couldn't drink the water in Flint, Michigan. I knew Donald Trump was going to win the elections. I only met Republicans hiking, no Democrats. The polls and the New York Times got it wrong and I left New York amid the post-election protests. At this point, the regular book contains a map of the Amtrak train routes in the lower 48 states of the USA, complete with their romantically named services such as the Empire Builder, the California Zephyr, the Coast Starlight, the Cardinal, the Palmetto, and of course the city of New Orleans, made famous all those years ago in Arlo Guthrie's famous song. I can't say I rode them all, but I rode quite a few. Chapter 10. Hitchhiking and Irish Buddhism. I made plans to stay in the western Irish city of Limerick, a town founded by Vikings in the 8th century, with friends I'd met in Bali. Several years earlier, Ina and John were opposites, she was a strong-willed German lady and he was a laid-back Irish lad. She'd moved to Ireland because she preferred the slow backwards pace of life there, unlike the modern industrialized nature of life in Germany. Their farmhouse was beautiful, they lived on John's family's dairy farm although in terms of New Zealand farming it wasn't much to speak of. John had 40 cows. Most farms in New Zealand have more than 10 times that. He laughed when I told him his farm was tiny. His farm was also surrounded by ancient peat forests. Because a lot of natural forest was cut down in the 14th century the government was encouraging and paying for farmers to rebuild the natural landscape. John's farm also had a tourist attraction on it. Apparently, the Virgin Mary appeared there in the 1940s, so every year hundreds of pilgrims came to pay their respects. John and Ina lived there with his mother and aunt. It is not uncommon in Irish families to take in elderly relatives and John was determined to look after his mother and aunt in their golden years. They took me along to an IRA fundraiser, which was interesting, and John jokingly told everyone that he and I were getting married just so he could see my reaction when the engagement tradition started. Everyone in the pub kissed me. I was not amused. Even though he'd joked we were getting married, Ina and John got engaged for real while I was staying with them, and we had a big party to celebrate. Engagement parties are very different events in Ireland, they're usually in a cafe-slash-restaurant and guests pay for their own food. Even though the alcohol was supplied and paid for by Ina and John it wasn't a big boozy affair like you'd expect in New Zealand. It was civilized. They took me to Pasadena a Buddhist retreat in the Bera Peninsula just outside a place called Adragal. I've always felt an affinity to Buddhism, there's gentleness to their worship that impresses me. About an hour into our first lesson, a former Catholic priest was talking about heaven and hell and I burst out laughing. I couldn't see the relevance of heaven and hell to Buddhism. Even though I was embarrassing Ina and John, I just couldn't stop giggling. Ireland has a long and often tragic history 
From Neolithic times through various rebellions against English and British rule, the devastating potato famine in the mid-1800s and the Irish Civil War in the 1920s, through to troubles in Northern Ireland in more recent decades and the financial upheavals of the present day. The potato famine, perhaps the most traumatic episode in a series of traumas, was named after the humble root vegetable because nearly half of the population relied on it for food. Around a million people died after disease wiped out their crops and another million emigrated, mostly to America and Australia. The famine thus removed about a quarter of the country's population of 8 million, which then continued to steadily decline to about 4 million by the early 1900s. Meanwhile the population of Great Britain and the rest of Europe leapt ahead by leaps and bounds. The record of British rule in Ireland really was a disaster. To look out over Ireland with its rolling glossy green hills, it's hard to believe that a nation of such laid-back people come from such a turbulent and violent history. But then you're never far from reminders. There are crosses everywhere. Plonked down in the middle of fields, everywhere you look you see white Gaelic crosses and ancient tombstones. After a wonderful time staying with my dear friends I decided to hitchhike around the country. I met a man who had travelled to New Zealand representing the Irish Agricultural Minister. He told me that the Canterbury Plains reminded him so much of Ireland he used pictures of them in promotional brochures advertising Ireland. I hope it was a joke. I hitchhiked northwest to the Aran Islands where I saw a peculiar blend of Arctic, Mediterranean and Alpine plants all growing in the same place. Apparently, they have some unusual soil and the winds blow in all directions bringing with it different seeds onto the islands. The Aran Islands claim to fame as having the smallest church in the world. Teampul Bhanain is an 11th-century stone building that measures 3.2 by 2.1 meters. It's also now the home of many quirky annual sellout events, like the Red Bull Cliff Diving Competition and the Father Ted Festival, because the TV show set in fictional Craggy Island was filmed there. There's a curious vegetable growing method here. Because most of the island is rock, they have to put seaweed on top of the rocks to turn it into pasture. They call the term lazy bed and it's often used to grow potatoes. Apparently, seaweed is a great fertilizer and it's a plentiful free resource. Even though Ireland's national flower is the shamrock, the most prolific flower is furze. The bright yellow blooms light up the landscape, but don't plan on skipping through fields of flowers, the prickly thorny leaves will leave you inch reds. In New Zealand furze is known as gauze and we're always trying to get rid of it, but in Ireland the flowers are used in salads, boiled down for natural remedies or turned into gauze flower wine which my mother also used to make. I'd always wanted to see Van Morrison live, but to see him play in front of an Irish audience at the one-day Mill Street Music Fair in Cork was incredible. The venue was small by outdoor concert standards, and the crowd of around 5,000 couldn't have been more enthusiastic or appreciated. The Irish love Irish performers, especially ones with such recognisable songs. I also saw Shane McGowan from The Pogues, The Cause and the Irish version of the Von Trapps, the Kelly family, who have sold over 20 million albums since the early 1980s. Although my time in Ireland was wonderful, it was time to leave. And this time, instead of hitchhiking around, I was using a slightly more reliable mode of transport, a bus. Chapter 11. Europe by bus, and on to Morocco. Around 4 million people a year use Eurolines, an inexpensive inter-country hop-on-hop-off intercity coach network. I paid around $850 for a ticket that gave me access to 600 destinations in 36 countries. Not only was I excited about visiting so many different countries, 
I was excited to find out what sort of people would be traveling on the bus. I headed down from Ireland to Paris, and then jumped off to visit the Louvre with an Australian girl Belinda I'd met on board. Belinda became my traveling companion. Belinda was 20, on a gap year and was from Melbourne. She was slim, blonde and drank little, compared to the others on the bus. She appreciated art culture and the old buildings and paintings. Most of the other passengers were heading to Oktoberfest, the annual German beer festival. Personally, I couldn't think of anything worse. The Louvre is one of my favorite places and it seems like I'm not alone, it's the second most visited museum in the world. With nearly 35,000 objects and artworks it's also the biggest art museum in the world. We caught the high-speed TGV train down to Versailles and even though I'd been to the palace before with Niels, I'd never visited the Royal Opera House. It didn't disappoint. Built in the 1770s to celebrate the marriage of Louis XVI to Marie Antoinette, it was used only for royal ceremonies and special occasions. Apparently it was too expensive to stage productions there if it wasn't for a major event. It has a stunning Baroque interior, the soft blue, golden cream-colored lavishness makes you feel like you're standing inside an expensive, ornate music box. Germany I'll never forget the shop window displays in Frankfurt. Every single window was dressed to perfection, the bakeries, markets and butchers all had individual scenes that were like works of art. The fishmongers was incredible, steaks from each fish hanging around a miniature fishing scene and each fish head was neatly arranged on slabs of stone. Even the kitchen shop joined in, they'd created tin robot creatures out of pots and pans. It was a very inventive and unique way to sell products. A short hour-long ride south of Frankfurt was Heidelberg, the famous university town. Heidelberg is a beautiful place, filled with dreamy romantic Baroque-styled buildings, it's like being in a Disney film. The six-hour journey to Berlin was a pleasant enough trip, but landing in the capital was difficult. To be in a city with such a turbulent past troubled me. I suppose you can never really prepare yourself to be in a place with such recent negative history. The Berlin Wall was built to cut the Soviet-occupied East Germany off from West Germany. Built in 1961, it symbolized hatred and divided communities and families. If you were seen trying to escape from the East to the West you were shot at, and thrown in prison if caught. Many Germans who were trapped in the East fled through a loophole to Austria and Hungary in the last days of the war in autumn 1989 eventually helping to dilute the power of the Soviet Union as well. The Soviet Union itself ceased to exist on Christmas Day 1991, just two years after the opening of the wall. There are still parts of the wall on display in Berlin, it was haunting. The Checkpoint Charlie Museum is grim. One image stood out for me, a photo of a little blonde girl trying to get through the wire fence, while her former neighbors watched. To stand where the Nazis burned books gave me chills, as well. Denying people literature was just one of the ways to control and subdue free thinking. As much as I loved parts of Germany, Berlin disturbed me. Italy. I love Italy. The art, the architecture, the historical churches, the people, it's a place that inspires and relaxes me. Rome is one of the best cities to wander about in. Every street has famous landmarks or an interesting past. I'd always wanted to go to the Vatican City. Having been raised a Roman Catholic meant that I had a lifelong fascination with Rome and the Vatican. Seeing the Baroque style of art and architecture in person was better than I could ever have expected. What surprised me the most, though, was how much classical architecture from 2000 years ago, originally of Greek inspiration, has survived. In fact, there seemed to be more classical architecture in Rome than in Greece.
While there, I found a postcard to send to my dear friend Mark Allen in New Zealand. A political activist who worked for the Unemployed Rights Centre in Auckland, Mark was a self-taught legal advocate who defended people's rights. I hadn't spoken to Mark in a while and had forgotten his address so called a mutual buddy to find his contact details. Tragically, he had died suddenly of a heart attack that morning, the day I was going to send him a postcard. I wish I had sent it earlier, don't let such time go by. Mark's death dampened my Vatican visit, it was difficult to fully enjoy the splendor of the Sistine Chapel while devastated about losing my friend so unexpectedly. But, as incredible as Rome was, it didn't compare to the beauty of Venice, the favorite stop of my entire European trip. I've never seen so many gold details, eagles, and phoenixes before. The Galleria dell'Accademia on the south bank of the Grand Canal blew me away. It was one of the first museums in the world to specialize in restoration, and as they've been committed to studying how best to renovate and refurbish ancient works of art since 1777, they're experts. With the world's best collection of Venetian art from the 14th to the 18th century, the Galleria dell'Accademia is an art lover's dream. The rich colors instantly took my breath away, with many works featuring dramatic depictions of religious scenes from the Last Supper to Mary's coronation. After a month in Italy, it was time to head west. Spain I hopped off in Valencia, the third largest city in Spain, after Madrid and Barcelona, and headed west to the small cultural hotspot of Toledo. Toledo has a rich history. Jews, Christians and Muslims have lived here together peacefully for over a thousand years, giving it the nickname, the City of Three Cultures. Wandering around the city transports you to another time, old buildings. Roman roads and olive trees makes you feel like you're in a pre-medieval era. A four-hour drive south, and I'm in Granada, at the bottom of the stunning Sierra Nevada mountain range, my favorite place in Spain. There are fewer tourists here, and it is home to an incredible Arabic palace and fortress called the Alhambra. Originally completed in 889 AD, the Alhambra was converted into a royal residence in 1333. Decorated with neutral-colored geometrical and ornately carved symmetrical patterns, it's an amazing piece of Islamic architecture set in lush gardens. There is music everywhere in Granada. One of my most vivid memories was stumbling across a street flamenco performance. It was the first time I'd heard true flamenco. Witnessing the passionate dancing and hearing the guttural tones of the singer, she sang from her stomach not just her mouth, made my jaw drop. Belinda and I danced and sang along even though I didn't know the words, but I was stoned and tipsy and partying with gypsies until five in the morning. After a big sleep in I headed south to Algeciras to catch the ferry to Morocco. Morocco The ferries to Morocco are fast. And cheap. Belinda and I met a few people on board, and we all decided we would explore Morocco together. We landed in the port of Tangier, which in the 1950s was a popular holiday destination for Europeans. Tangier is a melting pot of many different ethnicities, Arabic, Berber, French and nomadic tribes who still live in the Sahara Desert. There are many languages here. Berber and Moroccan Arabic are the main ones made use of by local people. But French, the language of the former French colonizers, is used on signs and in administration, as is more formal or classical Arabic. Many Moroccans also speak Spanish due to past Spanish colonialism, and English is widely understood in tourist areas as well. Tangier unsettled me, I almost instantly had an experience I'd rather forget. We were wandering around the city when I was confronted by a man with a large knife demanding money. 
but none of us had any cash to give him, we were all traveling on a budget, so I yelled at him to go get a job. Which was possibly a little insensitive in view of the likely rate of unemployment locally. He argued with me for a while, but I just kept shouting that I'd call the police. He didn't seem to understand exactly what I was saying but soon backed off. I was shaken by the experience. I decided to get out of Tangier and head south. We headed to Esueira, a small historical fortress town on the Atlantic coast in Morocco. It felt like a French town, and I later discovered that much of the fortification had been built by French engineers in the 18th century, the same ones that had built similarly fortified ports on the coast of France. Even though Esueira is a coastal town, the sand blows in pretty hard from the desert, so it's not a relaxing beach area. Isawiera is most famous for being the supposed inspiration behind Jimi Hendrix's castles made of sand although there's some debate whether it's just an urban myth. Hendrix did visit in 1969, but the song he supposedly wrote after seeing the half-buried Borgel buried fortress watchtower was actually released two years before his visit. Locals justify it by saying he came here in secret several years earlier. Regardless, there's a cafe there called Café Jimi Hendrix and many famous musicians came to Esueira in the 1960s and 1970s, the Rolling Stones, Frank Zappa, Maria Callas, Bob Marley, and Paul Simon. We stayed there for a week, and spent most of our time trying to avoid seven- and eight-year-old boys trying to sell us hash. We moved on to Marrakesh, a visually rich city. The deep hues of spices and jewel-toned fabric stalls in the market offset the faded pink buildings and the dusty desert landscape. But it's not just the colors that contradict each other, there's a stark contrast between the poor and the rich. The tourists have their own police, they're to assist in English if they need any help. Being in a mostly Muslim country was quite a culture shock for me. Women aren't allowed in cafes and are still segregated from men in public outside the busy tourist areas. It's normal for men to hold hands and be affectionate with each other here, but in New Zealand it's less common and generally only if you're homosexual. But of course, homosexuality is still officially frowned upon, or worse, in many non-Western countries, which I find unfortunate. We dressed carefully in Morocco. I wore long skirts and dresses with tops that covered my arms. But there were still lots of Europeans around that wore bikinis and miniskirts in public and didn't give a damn. I thought it was a bit rude, dressing modestly showed respect for the culture. Of course, if I was near the water I'd wear togs, but something more modest outside the pool area. The one thing I noticed about the heat was that even though it's scorching hot in Morocco, the sun isn't as harsh as in New Zealand. I didn't get sunburnt here, and I don't recall using sunscreen, again, we had a scary incident. Belinda and I were walking around the outskirts of the city when a stranger came up and punched me in the breast. I was shocked. And it hurt. It was completely unprovoked, we were both fully covered, and we weren't with any men. He ran away after I screamed at him. It was such a random act of violence that I struggled to make sense of it. But I didn't let it ruin my trip, almost every other person I'd met in Morocco was helpful and super friendly. In fact, they were so friendly Berlinda and I were invited to the Sahara Desert to eat dinner with some nomadic Berber people. It's apparently a sign of great honor to be asked, and very disrespectful to decline, so of course we went. The trip down to the desert from Marrakesh was insane, I felt like I was on another planet. Giant red mountains, lush green fields, dusty orange plains, deserted North African villages and donkeys everywhere carrying firewood, it was amazing. And then we saw the camels and the rising golden dunes of the Sahara.
The shepherd slow cooked us deliciously spiced lantagine with couscous in handmade clay pots on Moroccan fire pits, the fragrant smells tantalizing our taste buds. The nomads smoked weed and we talked, laughed and shared stories from our home countries. I had a short fling with a Berberastafarian, that's what holidays are for right? It was time to leave Morocco and head back to see friends in France. Chapter 12 Corsica After a few days in Marseille eating beautiful food with strong Arabic and Moroccan influences, Belinda and I decided to head to Corsica to stay with some old friends of mine from Elf Chine, the Chinese junk. Even though Corsica has been under France's rule for two centuries, it still feels like it's a separate country, the food, the languages, French and Corsican, and the culture. The birthplace of Napoleon is beautiful, most of the villages were built on top of mountains with sweeping views over the turquoise Mediterranean waters, because it gave the people a natural advantage over invading armies. And there were many. Corsica changed hands constantly between the Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Italians, French, British, and Germans, not to mention a brief period of self-rule. I adore the Corsican language, course, it sounds like a bird singing. Even though it sounds Spanish with lots of soft melodic vowel sounds, it's actually very similar to Italian. The way Italian and French have combined to make a new language was just beautiful. Another friend I made aboard the junk, Claude Mallet, had bought a property here in the 1970s. It was basically a shed that housed surfboards. Claude's friend, Bernard had a large family home there, he'd grown up on the island. Belinda and I each had our own room with beautiful shuttered windows. It was a nice change to have some space and privacy. I couldn't remember the last time I had not shared a room or dorm with somebody. We didn't have a car on the island, so we just hitchhiked everywhere. It was safe, apart from one time. Two dodgy shepherds picked us up and immediately turned off the main road to take us down some side roads to have their way with us. I yelled at them in French that I knew what they were doing, and they stopped and let us out in the middle of nowhere. It was terrifying, but I'd never been so glad to be stranded. Bernard told us not to go walking on Sundays because that's the day everyone goes hunting. Belinda and I thought he was exaggerating, so we headed off on a small bush walk, but we didn't last long. Sure enough, every man and his dog on the island was out with a gun. Off to get some fresh meat for Sunday dinner. We turned around and headed back to the house, I didn't fancy ending up as a meal. And speaking of meals, on Corsica they're intense, rich French sauces, plenty of duck, goose and game, and four course meals every night. And with nine wine regions on the island there's no shortage of world-class beverages. Plus, everyone drinks goat's milk instead of cow's milk. I'm not sure I'd ever really drunk it before, definitely not in New Zealand, but the rich salty flavor agreed with me. But not with my waistline, the food and wine and milk made me fat and I'd only been there two weeks. It was time to leave. I was overweight and needed to do some exercise. We ferried to Nice and Buster Grass, the perfume capital of the world, to do some rock climbing. But it wasn't for me. I don't like the feeling of being tied up. Free climbing with a pack, yes. Heights and ropes limiting my movement? No thanks. It made me anxious. So, it wasn't a long stay in the south of France. Vienna was calling my name. Chapter 13 Back on the bus Vienna, the capital of Austria, is a mix of over-the-top historical buildings and an ultra-modern buzzing nightlife. Even though Austria looks like a wealthy country due to its lavish architecture it was relatively cheap then, so it was perfect for travelers on a budget. 
Vienna was so clean, I don't think I saw a single piece of litter or graffiti anywhere. And I was looking out for it. I saw one of my favorite pieces of art in Vienna, in the Österreichische Galerie Belvedere Museum. Austrian artist Gustav Klimt made a number of paintings during his gold period where he combined gold leaf and paint to create shimmering works of art. The Kiss is his most popular piece and you can clearly see the Turkish influences in his design. The painting looks like it's made from hundreds of tiny mosaic fragments. After a short stay in the capital we headed to Innsbruck to get a sense of how people lived outside the main centers. I'm so glad we did. Candy-colored five-story buildings built against the backdrop of the Kauendl Alps, with villagers working in the fields with hand tools. I felt like we'd gone back in time. After only a few days in Austria my feet were itchy. And I was hungry for more adventures. We jumped back on the coach and headed southeast for three hours to the Hungarian capital of Budapest, and found a super-budget hostel within minutes of landing. For only five New Zealand dollars a night we had a shared dorm room and an evening meal. But the meal was odd, cheap but not cheerful. It was a goulash with a piece of fatty yellow chewy slimy meat floating on the top. I'd never tasted anything like it, and I'm pretty sure it was horse meat. We met a crazy Australian man called Rod there. He'd sold his house and was spending all his money on drinking. And bizarrely I ran into Karen, the woman from New Orleans who was claiming insurance on everything and blaming other travelers for theft. We avoided them both. Budapest had a touch of sadness. A lot of the public artwork and monuments were created during the Soviet rule after World War II and, even though communist rule had ended years earlier, you could still see the strong Soviet influence everywhere. Beauty spas in Budapest are something else. We went to the Arab baths and were scrubbed down from head to toe until all the black gunk came out of our pores. I was amazed that my skin had so many impurities, not for long though. Another coach ride for four hours northward, and we were in Slovakia, the less developed and industrialized half of the recently broken up Czechoslovakia, which had divided in two in 1993 in a completely peaceful manner, in stark contrast to Yugoslavia which was also breaking up at around that time. Slovakia was filled with castles and dramatic scenery of mountaintop villages, soaring peaks and wooded forests, but at the same time it was less touristy than other places in Europe we'd visited. Slovakia in those immediately post-communist days wasn't geared up for visitors. Hostels and venues weren't really sure how to handle tourists, they almost seemed a little surprised by foreigners. But they were still lovely people to be around even if, or perhaps because, they didn't get tourism. We didn't stay long, though. Seven hours northwest on the coach and we were in Prague in the Czech Republic, the other half of the former Czechoslovakia. What a country! Every single person I know that's been to Prague has raved about it. And I could understand why. It's a grand city filled with beautifully preserved cobblestone roads, castles, colorful Baroque buildings and Gothic architecture, but with a modern vibrancy and buzz that catches you by surprise. It's the fifth most visited European city and one of the cheapest spots to visit on the continent. Prague is magnificent. I loved my time there. Even though it was short, I'll definitely go back again one day. We had time for one more stop, Amsterdam. So, we hopped back on and traveled ten hours northwest to the heart of the Netherlands. I'd always dreamt of being able to legally smoke weed in a bar, in public, so Amsterdam gave me a sense of freedom. But this trip was riddled with awkwardness. An Irish couple on the coach were drunk and abusive to each other, and the general vibe at the hostel was annoying. I didn't want to hang out with assholes, let alone stoned assholes. 
I said my goodbyes to Berlinda, she'd been a wonderful travel buddy, and headed back to London so I could return to New Zealand. Chapter 14 Time to settle down in New Zealand, for a minute. After so many adventures I decided it was time to stay in New Zealand and build a career, so I enrolled in a postgraduate diploma in secondary teaching. Little did I know I was in for a rude awakening. The course was full of complex and interesting issues. One of the training sessions was about learning to deal with a female student that wanted to be a male. Now in 1997 there was very little knowledge or acceptance of cross-gender children or adults. I remember thinking that it wasn't a serious issue because it wouldn't be very common. But in reality, it's a pressing issue in our society and all over the world. I went on several placements where you get to teach in schools with varying age groups. Sadly, I was part way through my course when I realized that I couldn't teach in my favorite subject, history, because there weren't enough students interested in learning about it. Such a shame. In fact, why should history be optional? Why should the choice to study history be left up to students who have not yet lived through very much of it? I was placed in Auckland's Mount Albert Boys Grammar, now co-ed and called Mount Albert Grammar, one of the largest schools in the country. I was teaching social studies and was stunned to discover that the majority of my class of Polynesian and Maori children didn't know their whakapapa, their ancestral heritage. Instead of using the school's textbooks to teach them about their heritage, I started playing music by New Zealand rapper Savage to inspire them to ask around at home about their families and backgrounds. The kids loved it. They started writing their own raps and many of them came back to school with newly discovered information about their ancestry. I was happy that I'd been able to encourage a discussion around paternal lineage. The school was not happy with this exercise, rap music wasn't as well received in mainstream society then, like hip-hop is now, so I suspect they thought I was too much of a maverick. At Linfield College, I'd also arranged for the soon-to-be Green MP Nando Tansosh to come and speak to my class, but his visit was vetoed by the school because of his stance on the decriminalization of marijuana. I told the school to get stuffed, I won't be told what to think and how to act and I resent the fact that we cannot use drugs for personal use in New Zealand. I hung up pro-pot pamphlets around the staff room. That went down well. I finally graduated in 1998 along with my friend Claire Duncan, a very clever woman who was already using computer software long before it became a fundamental part of teaching practices. She was ahead of her time. I started teaching at De La Salle College, a Catholic boys' school in South Auckland. De La Salle was leading a program to track student literacy and improve performance by keeping student records to improve student performance. Many committed teachers did extracurricular activity to help students. De La Salle is the leading Catholic school in the country now used as an example for other Catholic schools to emulate. All the same, it was a shock to the system and it opened my eyes to a whole other side of teaching. I started off the job healthy and fit but by the end of my time there I'd gained 7 kilograms and was stressed out. The boys here were tough, I was told to get fucked on a daily basis and according to school statistics, a third of the boys in my class had been sexually abused. Two brothers at De La Salle called me Madonna. I took it as a compliment. I guess they thought my outspoken style of expressing myself reminded them of the ballsy pop star. The school was big on sporting achievements. A number of former All Blacks and other notable athletes are former alumni. One day I entered the school's hockey team into a local tournament. Unfortunately one of the star first 15 rugby players, who also played hockey, fell over and broke his arm. And I was blamed for it. 
Rugby players are revered in New Zealand, and apparently I shouldn't have encouraged him to play hockey. As it was a Catholic school I was required to go to Mass. And I found that my views often conflicted with those represented by the school. I supported gay rights and had to constantly defend my views to colleagues and students. I told my class one day that as the Anglican Church hadn't banned homosexuality why should the Catholic Church? I believed that God loves everyone so I couldn't understand the hypocrisy. And then one student tried to kill himself. Apparently he'd had a relationship with a young teacher. What appalled me was that despite the situation being brought to the school's attention the teacher was able to leave without so much as a slap on the wrist. But then that wasn't an uncommon strategy within school environments in that era. The Oscar-winning film Spotlight uncovered systemic levels of child abuse in Boston in the United States of America, all of which was deliberately concealed by more powerful members of the clergy, issues common across the world in that era. I became the spokesperson for the campaign for public transport at the time with my friends Chris Harris and Michael Heath Caldwell. We were committed to finding alternative transportation methods and opposed motorway expansion. Michael was going to stand for the ACT Party with Alex Sni, who was later imprisoned for submitting false invoices, and worked hard for a number of community-focused organizations. It all got too much. I was investing so much energy trying to improve things at the school and in the community that I was emotionally and physically drained. I was grumpy and sluggish due to the weight I put on from comfort eating. I needed a change. Not from teaching, just from the intense challenges that De La Salle brought. So, I moved to Papatoto High School to take the role of head of economics, thinking that no school could be as bad as the previous one. I was wrong. I was surprised that I was given a managerial position so early in my teaching career but soon discovered that it was because no one else wanted it, the other teachers were dropping like flies from the stress of this environment. In most schools, it seems the students used emotional blackmail to bully teachers into giving them good grades. Students would regularly accuse teachers of being gay or lesbian and would threaten to tell authorities that they'd been molesting them. It was awful, and I saw several great teachers leave over these unfounded accusations and threats. There was a climate of absolute fear operating here, the students had power over the teachers and there was no way to shift it. So, I left. I tried another school, but it was more of the same, teachers were not only verbally abused, but there were physical altercations as well. And the school didn't support the teaching staff. I was becoming very disillusioned with the education system, so I took a break to get my head around what had happened. In my first year of teaching I became involved with the PPTA. New Zealand's post-primary teachers association. I ended up becoming the treasurer, which wasn't an easy job. By the end of my tenure at the PPTA, I'd more than balanced the books and had saved the union $27,000. The teachers on the PPTA got laptops which was great. But we disagreed about procedures, I was thought to be too officious about money, not flexible or something. Even though working for the union was frustrating I do believe they're a necessity. It was the neoliberal agenda that brought in New Zealand's current educational standards and the National Certificate of Achievement, NCEA. It's a competitive approach to learning rather than the previous cooperative approach. However, the vast majority of the NCEA qualification is now internally assessed, not externally assessed as it once was. There are a lot of pros and cons to the new system and it's vastly different from when I was at school. After all these disappointments I went to heal in the best way possible. With travel. Chapter 15. Vietnam. My friend Rose Sejardin and I decided to go to Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, to stay with some pals from the Elf Chine. 
Mary Budgeon lived there with her husband and son for half the year, the rest of the year they stayed in France. Their house in Vietnam was amazing, four levels, six bedrooms and a live-in maid who cost them only $100 a month. That seems cheap, but it was nearly three times the monthly minimum wage of around $35. Vietnam was busy, super friendly and inexpensive. I got an entire silk wardrobe made to measure, beautiful dresses and a corporate wardrobe of skirts, jackets and trousers, all of which fitted perfectly. Everyone in Vietnam seemed to work, from making crafts or running street food stalls. My favorite place to go to had around 30 different wrapped rice rolls with every filling possible from pork to coconut rat, if you saw the rat climbing up a coconut tree you could ask them to catch it, skin it and cook it for you in a coconut broth. We visited the War Remnants Museum, the official museum of the Vietnam War, one of the longest and costliest conflicts in history. Around three million people were killed in the two-decade-long war between the Communist North and the South and its allies, mainly the United States of America. Eventually the Americans withdrew following mounting pressure back home, and North Vietnam took the reluctant South under its communist wing. The exhibitions in the museum were profoundly shocking. Photos of United States of America soldiers abusing the Vietnamese and the effects of Agent Orange, the notorious airdropped herbicide the Americans used to destroy forest cover. Similar to the herbicides 2,4,5T and 2,4D that were widely used by farmers and gardeners in those days, Agent Orange contained toxic impurities that caused all kinds of deformities and illnesses among people and wildlife that were exposed to it. Animals that depended on the forest also starved and died. My visit to the museum still haunts me today. I understand that many of the confronting displays and images have been removed now, but back then, deformed fetuses ranging from four to nine months old in glass jars made me feel physically sick. I had to leave. Heading outdoors to get some fresh air and seeing one of the planes used to drop the toxins left me visibly disturbed. We headed to the beach to clear our heads, and hearts, and were surprised to see a filthy, plastic bag-littered beach. Rose and I began helping the locals to clear the beach of all the bags, I guess they'd blown in from the city and, as the sand was damp and sticky, they just ended up settling there. Rose and I hired some motorbikes to go see the Mekong Delta, three hours south of Ho Chi Minh City. The Mekong Delta is a place where the Mekong River empties into the sea. It's a biologically diverse area and an important ecological region of Vietnam. I thought it was a really beautiful and special place, the lush green forest and unspoiled landscape gave it a spiritual quality. We visited a coconut candy factory, a family-run business that makes candy by hand from all natural ingredients. Nothing is wasted here. Banana lollies are made from banana leaves and even the husks were used to fuel the fires. The rice paddies were amazing, winding layers of bright green steps throughout the countryside. It couldn't be more different than the sheep-covered rolling hills of New Zealand. I couldn't get over how friendly everyone was. They had plenty to be upset about given their tortured history, but they didn't show it. We ended up in a small rural town called Huyen and had a French-Vietnamese meal, five courses of incredible fresh flavors, coconut crab, lemongrass-dressed pork salad and desserts, for only $5. Vietnam was one of my favorite places to visit, despite its tragic past. But it was time to keep on moving, so, we headed to China. Chapter 16 Oriental Lightning We flew from Tan Son Nyut International Airport to Hong Kong, where we stayed with a mutual friend. Hong Kong is an assault on the senses, the city literally never sleeps. I had thought Vietnam was busy, 
but this was the next level. Even though there it had a similar population to Ho Chi Minh City, Hong Kong was more frenetic. A European friend of mine showed us around the city and pointed out which live fish in restaurants were safe and not safe to eat. He swore that many of the fish tanks were filled with sewage water. He advised us to never eat seafood in Hong Kong, unless we want food poisoning. Immediately, I wanted to get out into the hills to get back to nature and hike. I'd heard that nearby there were some of the best tramping in the region, so I organized a day tour and headed off by myself. Plover Cover Country Park in the northeast is a serene retreat from the hustle and bustle of the city. The brown grassy hills and slopes reminded me of summer dried hills in Okura slash Long Bay in Auckland. But the rice paddies were a very different feature. I was surprised. And then I was doubly surprised. As I was hiking a bolt of lightning struck the ground a meter in front of me. I jumped back in shock, wondering whether it had anything to do with an affair I'd been having with a man separated from his wife. It was not something I was proud of either and it had been playing on my mind when I was nearly struck. Chapter 17 The Not-So-New Caledonia Nouvelle Caledonie, known in English as New Caledonia, is a French-administered, French-speaking island territory lying on the Tropic of Capricorn, east of Queensland and northwest of New Zealand. The largest island in the territory, Grand Terry, is 350 kilometers long and is the island on which the territory's capital, Noumea-R, is located. This is the island that New Zealanders think of when New Caledonia is mentioned, and it is the one Captain Cook named New Caledonia to begin with, as for some reason it reminded him of Scotland. But today Grand Terry is only one of the islands of the French territory of New Caledonia, which also includes the Ile Loyote, Loyalty Islands, the Ile des Pins, Isle of Pines, the Chesterfield Islands and the Belep Archipelago among others. In the year 2000, the total population of the territory was only a quarter of a million. That year was also the year of my first visit to New Caledonia, and once more, my sister was traveling with me. I was still trying to leave my disappointing teaching experience behind. So, I was irritated that the hotel we were staying in was full of noisy, yelling, screaming school children, and teachers, from Australia and New Zealand. Every night they ran up and down the hallways, it was a nightmare. Marie and I hired a car, and while out exploring we came across a New Zealand grave site with a New Zealand flag flying. This was the Burrell New Zealand War Cemetery, which includes a monument inscription to 17 New Zealand coast watchers executed by the Japanese on Tarawa in late 1942. Coast watchers were radio operators employed by the New Zealand Government Post and Telegraph Department, mostly civilians, and thus liable to be treated as spies, who were placed on islands all over the South Pacific Ocean from the sub-Antarctic to the equator to report on southward Japanese shipping and aircraft movements after Pearl Harbor. Many were captured as the Japanese moved south and their treatment varied considerably depending on how strict the local Japanese commander was, the ones commemorated in Burail had drawn the short straw. In December 1942 the New Zealand government realized its omission and gave the Coast Watchers military rank. The unfortunate 17 New Zealanders commemorated in Burail had been executed on Tarawa along with a smaller number of Britons and Australians. The Japanese never quite got to New Caledonia. But Burail was where they were buried as it had been a New Zealand military base in World War II. Burail had been the headquarters of the 3rd New Zealand Division which was put on New Caledonia to defend the territory from invasion and was the natural site for a Pacific Theatre War Cemetery thereafter. It was totally unexpected, quite surreal and frightening. We had no idea prior to finding the graves that this was even here, 
or that Burel had even existed. Everybody in New Zealand has a relative who fought against the Germans or the Italians in World War II, or so it seems. Indeed, New Zealanders do mostly think of World War II in terms of Grandad's part in the downfall of Rommel, Mussolini, or the German commander in Italy, Albert Kesselring. Plus, of course, all those New Zealanders who flew in the Battle of Britain and RAF Bomber Command, not to mention the part played by the Royal New Zealand Navy in the sinking of the Graf Spee. But the fact that New Zealanders were in the Pacific too, both as coast watchers and as combatants in some of the battles as well, seems to be forgotten by comparison. Philemus, the Minister of Education in New Zealand's 1972-1975 Labour government whom I mentioned earlier, flew as a navigator in Royal New Zealand Air Force Grumman Avenger torpedo bombers in the Pacific during World War II. This puts Phil in the same select company as the former U.S. President George H.W. Bush, who piloted the same aircraft for the U.S. Navy in the Pacific. I mean Bush Sr. of course, not to be confused with George W. Bush. But due to a rather colonial tendency to over-identify with Britain and its predicament in 1940, or in reality also because most New Zealand casualties by far were incurred in Europe and North Africa, the New Zealanders came to forget about the Pacific War even though it happened in our backyard. New Zealand was full of U.S. Marines at the time, and major American operations of the Pacific War were planned in Auckland. And yet it was all largely forgotten about as soon as it was over. The 3rd New Zealand Division were disparaged as the Coconut Bombers, but they would have had more work to do if Japanese forces had made it to New Caledonia. One unexpectedly positive consequence of a tendency to forget about the Pacific War was that the anti-Japanese and more generally anti-Asian animus that took hold in Australia after World War II was never seen in post-war New Zealand. Japanese-style interior décor came to be seen as the last word in sophistication in post-war New Zealand. Our economic hopes also came to be pinned on closer cooperation with countries like Japan, Indonesia, and China, at a time when the average Australian wouldn't have been seen dead driving a Japanese car and had the gravest reservations about the various other sources of the yellow peril as well. And so, by a strange reverse irony, post-war Australia became more Eurocentric and fearful of its physical position on the globe, every 1960s Australian school kids atlas showing the whole of Asia about to descend on their little heads, even as New Zealand became less focused on a historic colonial Britishness, and to embrace the Pacific and Asia at last. Getting back to New Caledonia, Marie and I were based in Noumea, and there were a few things I didn't like about that place. Marie and I went on a cruise celebrating different Pacific islands, I met a professor from Waikato University in New Zealand who was Melanesian, that is to say from the large islands of the southwestern Pacific, of which Grand Terry is one. This professor was originally from the Solomon Islands. But the Solomons are close to New Caledonia, and the people are related to the indigenous inhabitants of New Caledonia. He said that he found it extremely insulting to be in New Caledonia on board a cruise where the entertainment consisted of Tahitian dancers, the Tahitians being a completely different culture from the southeastern Pacific, a culture more like that of the New Zealand Maori as it happens. Tahitians come from an island group whose only connection to New Caledonia is that Tahiti, too, is run by the French. Where was the local Melanesian, that is, southwestern Pacific culture? I agreed with him. As an academic might say, to have Tahitian entertainment on a cruise through the Southwest Pacific was a colonial appropriation, a sort of doll's house arrangement where the French could just pick and choose which of the various exotic natives they ruled over were going to be put on stage, even in this day and age. 
This is not to take an automatically pro-independence or anti-French line. Many small island states are quite unviable by themselves, and often seek some kind of quasi-colonial protector even when nominally independent, that's just a fact of life. But the dangers of ending up in a patronizing relationship are something to bear in mind. We toured around the islands and kayaked the beaches. Everywhere we went there were seagulls screeching and crying as they flew about. I managed to find a quiet spot to have a beach nap and, just as I was drifting off to sleep, I saw something slithering towards me. A local came running over to me and told me to move quickly, it was a snake. Not just any snake though, a very poisonous green snake. I scarpered. In the 1960s former French President Georges Pompidou visited New Caledonia on his way to visit the nuclear testing facilities in Tahiti. Though he spent a lot of time mending fractured relations between the various colonies of France and the metropolitan power, there's still a lot of political instability today between the pro-independence and French loyalists. I went to the Pompidou Museum to learn a little more. I was absolutely appalled. 1930s postcards showed beautifully dressed Tahitian, Hawaiian and Maori women. But the local Melanesian women were all depicted as savages photographed in unflattering poses surrounded by children. It was clear to see that back then the Melanesians were viewed as uncivilized, whereas other islanders from the Eastern Pacific, who were lighter-skinned, and also less distinct from Europeans in terms of their facial features, somewhat Asian in appearance, being related to Malays or Indonesians, were seen in a skewed, romanticized view. This is a familiar prejudice. Melanesian literally means from the islands of the blacks. For a long time it was held that those who had the misfortune not to be white were at least better off being light brown and more or less Asian looking like a Tahitian or a New Zealand Maori or a Malay, rather than a black person with frizzy hair, the typical Melanesian appearance. Noumea was full of fancy, boring, hotels and resorts like Club Med. I couldn't wait to leave. Marie and I headed to another island, Laifau, which is the largest and most populous island in the Ile Loyote. We ended up staying in a traditional Melanesian hut, made entirely from materials found in the surrounding forest. Here we got to experience real local life, not some overpriced and overcrowded hotel that seemed cut off from the local people. The local family we stayed with was very welcoming. I actually learned a lot about the local history and even about the native Maori of New Zealand. I found out that the New Zealand Maori were originally part of the Lapita people who had traveled from China through Melanesia and eventually made their way down to New Zealand. The distinction between Eastern Pacific peoples including the Maori, who are collectively known as Polynesians, people from the many islands, and the more westerly Melanesians, is not completely fixed. There was certainly plenty of intermarriage along the way, and these seafaring peoples were forever visiting distant archipelagos in a deliberate fashion. The notion that the distinction between Melanesia and Polynesia can be upheld in any completely hard and fast manner reflects an old-fashioned obsession with ethnic racial classifications, of a sort that would nowadays be judged as rather unwholesome, and which also crumbles somewhat in the face of the reality of back-and-forth migrations, some ancient and some more modern. Indeed, some of the local families where I stayed were actually of Maori descent, the product of a more recent reverse migration which I was extremely surprised by. They told me about how they had visited New Zealand quite a number of times, how they'd been to Rotorua and gotten to know many Maori people in the tourism industry in New Zealand. The lady we were staying with was off to visit some friends, so she left her son to cook for us. I remember the delicious island meals he made for us from coconut crabs, with the biggest pincers I'd ever seen. 
They were strong enough to open a coconut shell to get to the sweet white flesh inside the fruit. He also cooked us pig and told us that all the pigs on their island are fed coconut, so we were eating coconut pig. It was so juicy and succulent. The son told me that walking around after six o'clock at night wasn't safe for women. Apparently, there were many stories of village women being raped by drunken men. He said the only way to stay safe is to make sure you have young children with you. So, I rounded up some of the local kids and we all went for a walk. While we were wandering around, I met a man who lived in the south of France, I had a sneaking suspicion he was up to no good. I was right. He was planting marijuana with some of the locals. He invited me to go along, which I did purely out of curiosity. I ended up helping carry the bamboo pole stakes to the area. I was a bit nervous, but because it wasn't something I'd ever done before it was a little exciting. Even though it was time to leave New Caledonia, I wasn't done with island hopping. My next stop was the picturesque Polynesian country of the Cook Islands. Chapter 18 Rarotonga A friend of mine from childhood, Diana Ataera, was from the island of Rarotonga in the Cook Islands, so, I'd always wanted to go there. Where I grew up in Hawke's Bay there was a large Rarotongan community, many of them settled in farming communities in the 1950s in places like Waipawa. Diana's father was half Samoan and half Rarotongan, and he lived on the island most of the time. I was always captivated by his stories. I finally found time to visit. Most tourists, and many locals, use scooters to get around because the island isn't big. It's only 11 kilometers long with one ring road that goes around the whole island. You could almost walk around the whole island in a day. I ended up at a local stone marae, which is different to the wooden New Zealand Maori marae, but they're both sacred places with historical significance. The one I came across had eerie sacrificial stones everywhere and was over 2,000 years old. There was also a canoe there that had apparently sailed to New Zealand and back. The Cook Island language is officially known as Cook Island Maori and is extraordinarily similar to New Zealand Maori. When the Maori king from New Zealand visits Rarotonga he has no trouble communicating because the language is so similar. I hired a motorbike and thought that because it's a small safe slow island, I didn't need to bother with hiring a helmet. Anyway, so I'm zooming around with no helmet thinking how clever I was and the next thing I know, I'm lying on the road with the motorbike on its side. My bike hit a pothole, the roads aren't in great condition, and I fell off and smashed my head into the road. It hurt. A lot. I learned that even if you think you don't need a helmet, wear one just in case. One of the best things about Rarotonga for someone with a New Zealand bank account is that you can use your New Zealand EFTBOS card at any of the shops. And even though there is a Rarotongan currency, you can use New Zealand money as well. Rarotonga is an island of contrasts. Alongside all the fancy resorts and boutique hotels there's a lot of poverty. It's a Christian nation and all the locals go to church on a Sunday, but then a lot of them go and drink alcohol straight afterwards. I was surprised to discover there's a major problem with methamphetamine drugs on the island. Foreigners aren't allowed to buy land in the Cook Islands. If you purchase a property you lease the land it is on from a local family, a lease which gets passed through the generations. I thought it was a brilliant idea because it means that land stays within the family. A new law was brought in recently saying that you can't claim your part of the land without getting every single living family member's signatures. The Cook Islands group is made up of many small islands and atolls. I visited the picture-perfect, much romanticized island of Itataki. At only 18 square kilometers, it's even smaller than Rarotonga. 
I was able to walk around the whole island at a leisurely pace over grass and bush and saw pigs, fruit and flowers everywhere. The native flower, the tiara is similar to a frangipani. The long stretches of glistening white sand all along the coast made it easy to see why so many people want to get married there. I stayed with an older retired couple who were originally from Manukau in Auckland. They were there to teach the locals how to grow food and showed me how to plant and harvest pineapple and taro. A lot of people say itataki is expensive, but it wasn't. I had a room of my own with an ensuite bathroom, which only cost $15 a night. The only downside was another tourist who drove me nuts. I spent a week there and was fascinated to hear anecdotal stories from the locals. One told me that all the local men were ditching their Cook Island wives for Australian ones. I could tell this made her a little sad. I met a great German girl there and we headed back to Rarotonga together to stay in a backpackers hostel in Murray. I found some of the beaches around Rarotonga were quite rough and dangerous, so I didn't go swimming there. But I did spend time on a few locals' boats, and even a day cruise tour. I got on so well with the locals I was even offered a job as the principal of a local school. But I couldn't imagine living there all year round. I'm not really a beach person so the idea of living on such a small island completely surrounded by water didn't interest me at all, I'm more of a mountain girl. The heat was another thing too, it gets really hot there, it's rare that the temperature drops below 20 degrees Celsius. I don't mind the heat but not for too long. I met some guys from Taranaki in New Zealand, and two girls from France. We explored and hung out together. A recent storm had completely destroyed the power and pearl oyster farms, which was sad. Black pearls are used in lots of jewelry on the island. Almost every store has black pearl bracelets, necklaces or rings. We climbed the only sizable peak on the island, Mangapu, which simply means top of the mountain and is also affectionately called the needle. We were nearly at the top when one of the guys yelled watch out for the monkeys. Everyone freaked out and started running away but then stopped when they heard him laughing. He was only joking. Half of our group got really upset with him but I thought it was hilarious. Land mammals are rare in the South Pacific. The islands are all a pretty long swim from anywhere, and, for that reason, were generally inhabited by birds before people arrived, along with whatever reptiles and insects could survive bobbing around on a log for months. This was even true of New Zealand to a large extent. So, there certainly aren't any monkeys in the Cook Islands. Chapter 19. Return to Europe. I was off to Greece and Turkey to catch up with an old friend and colleague of mine, Doug Taylor. We'd planned to spend four months in Europe together, then head down to Egypt and Jerusalem before returning to New Zealand. But then I fell in love with a saxophone player called Andy, so my plans changed a bit. Doug and I still went to Athens, but I didn't enjoy the vibe there. I'd expected to see soft whitewashed adobe-style buildings with a cerulean blue ocean backdrop. Not in Athens, it's tacky, very hot and rocky. I found the attitude towards tourism hostile, beds in hostels and hotels would go to the highest bidder. After three nights in a reasonably priced hotel, the manager told us the room had gone up. Instead of paying the increased price, which was considerably more than what we'd negotiated, we checked out. It was a disappointing first introduction to Greece. One night, at a restaurant, a man approached Doug and said that unless we paid him 200 euros he would hurt me. I was terrified. And horrified. Doug, of course, being a gentleman, paid the fine and we got out of there as quickly as we could. It was extremely unsettling. Greece felt like a major rip-off and the plumbing was a nightmare. You aren't allowed to flush toilet paper down the toilet, 
Instead you place your used tissue into a bucket next to the loo. It was disgusting. Utterly disgusting. On top of the unease and disappointment I felt there it was also tinged with sadness. I'd grown up thinking that this was an amazing place with a fascinating civilization, but the Greek museums didn't appear to have many original ancient artifacts. The originals are kept in the Tate and British museums. I'd seen more Greek statues in the Vatican City than in the country where they came from. But of course, only Greece has the ancient citadel of the Acropolis and its crowning glory, the Parthenon. Yes, they're ruins, but the fact that there is still anything to see at all after more than 2,400 years is incredible. We did manage to find that classic Greek experience though on the island of Patmos. It was relaxed, not as young and boozy as Athens, with fewer tourists and more culture. Patmos is mentioned in the Bible's Book of Revelation. Saint John the Apostle, one of the Twelve Apostles, is traditionally supposed to have penned the Book of Revelations on Patmos, though modern scholars have concluded that the author was in truth a later figure banished to the island during persecutions of Christians at the height of the Roman Empire, 200 years after Jesus. Either way Patmos has become a destination for pilgrims, including many Greek Australians. There are several churches dedicated to Saint John of Patmos, whoever he was, and you can visit the cave in which he is said to have written the Book of Revelations, a book that has always been a favorite of mine even if it is also hard to make much sense of. In 1803 the German romantic Friedrich Hölderlin honored Saint John in a poem called Patmos, which famously begins Nahest, und schwer zu fassen der Gott, or the God is near, and hard to grasp. After Patmos we headed to Rhodes, a small spearhead-shaped island, which like many of the Greek islands is closer to Turkey than to mainland Greece. Rhodes is the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The 30-meter colossus of Rhodes statue straddled the harbor greeting sailors for 54 years, until it was destroyed by an earthquake in 226 BC. Rhodes has one of the largest medieval towns in Europe. The town is an impressive collection of beautifully restored Gothic buildings, roads, fortresses, and a castle, the Palace of the Grand Master. The villages on roads were sublime, rows of brilliant white mud houses with rounded edges overlooking the Aegean Sea. It was stunning. But it was here that I heard one of the most disturbing stories of all my adventures. A man we met told us that he'd been drugging tourists, mostly Russian women, and taking them home. He was working as a barman, so he had unfettered access to their drinks. He then asked if I wanted a beer. As soon as Doug returned from the bathroom we left. I never told him about the Greek freak. I hadn't enjoyed Greece. For that reason, I couldn't wait to get to Turkey. Turkey. We took the train from Athens to Turkey to save money. It would have taken just over an hour to fly there, but by rail it took us 12 hours. We drank a lot of beer. So, I can't remember anything about the landscape. We eventually arrived in Istanbul and I remember wondering where all the women in headscarves and burqas were. Because Turkey is a Muslim country, I assumed that women would be modestly dressed. But Istanbul is a very modern western-style city, a city of surprises. These days there are more headscarves, but that was then. I was interested to see that Turkish people had more Mongolian features than Arabic. For of course the Turks are of Central Asian origin, and linguistically unrelated to most other Middle Eastern peoples. I hadn't known that to begin with. I was also surprised to learn, clearly, I didn't know much about the actual diversity of the Middle East. Dash that the most conspicuous of Istanbul's mosques had begun its existence as a Christian cathedral, originally erected in the later years of the Roman Empire. 
Hagia Sophia is the Turkish version of the building's original Greek name of Hagia Sophia, meaning blessed wisdom. After the city was captured by the Turkish-dominated Ottoman Empire in 1453, the Cathedral of Hagia Sophia became the Mosque of Hagia Sophia. Many of its mosaics and specifically Christian features were covered with plaster, though the building was otherwise preserved and even strengthened against earthquakes under Ottoman rule. Since the 1930s Hagia Sophia has been a secular museum, and when I was there a full-scale renovation and restoration was underway. Shimmering, colorful marble mosaics lined the inside of the Great Dome, nearly 56 meters high on the inside. It is a sight to behold. We traveled down the Aegean coast stopping at little hostels along the way. One hostel owner suggested I marry him and become his second wife. I didn't think that being a sister wife was an attractive proposition so politely declined. I was surprised how much he looked like one of the New Zealand Maori people. The thing about travel is that you notice the differences and similarities to what you know, everywhere you go. At another small coastal village, I saw a family of traditional Muslim women dressed in hijabs. The four-year-old daughter reached up and pulled the grandmother's hijab off her head. The mother didn't know what to do because she was holding a baby and the grandmother was frantically trying to recover her hair. She was very annoyed and told the little girl off. I couldn't stop laughing, despite the fact that they were glaring at me. No one else was laughing, no doubt by their standards I was very impolite. Aside from that one moment of embarrassment, I was welcomed, greeted and treated warmly everywhere I went in Turkey. The Turkish people love New Zealanders and a surprising number of people I met had family in New Zealand. I wonder whether it's because we have such a strong connection to the Turkish through the war and the tragic events at Gallipoli. The rug industry is huge in Turkey, if you ever need a carpet get one here. Even though they're on sale on every corner, the salespeople weren't as pushy as they were in other parts of the world I visited. I'm a huge fan of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the first president of Turkey. He led his country out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire to create the Republic of Turkey. His last name actually means Father of Turks and, since he was gifted the name in 1934, no one else is allowed to be called that. He was a revolutionist, and after World War I he built thousands of schools, made education free and gave women equal rights. I fell in love with Turkey and the people, it was such a contrast of old and modern, and an absolute mine of historic places and sites. I had desperately wanted to visit the ancient Christian caves of central Turkey, but we just ran out of time. But traveling is expensive, and I needed to earn some money. So, I headed to London to get back into teaching. Postscript I arrived in Turkey for the second time in my life toward the end of 2017, landing at Istanbul. Almost immediately, I could see that a lot had changed. The prosperous and secular country I visited last time was in a slump. Islamic headscarves, previously rare, were also common. A combination of terrorist attacks and political upheaval had slashed tourism numbers and thrown the wider economy into a tailspin. Just before I arrived, the news media announced that visas would no longer be given to U.S. visitors. This was because the USA was harboring the cleric Fethullah Gulen, who the government of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan regarded as a coup plotter. Even so, I made it at long last to the Christian caves I'd been wanting to get to for so long, in the region long known as Cappadocia. It turned out that many of these caves, carved into a layer of pumice-like volcanic ash, actually predated classical civilization and had simply been inhabited by Christians from the time the area became Christian, as their latest tenants. The Christians in this region were also ethnically Greek. 
The Greek cum Christian presence lasted until the 1920s, when in a spasm of ethnic purification of the kind that was to become all too familiar in the 20th century, the Greeks were thrown out of most of Turkey and a sizable Turkish minority also expelled from Greece. Turks then moved into Cappadocia and its cave dwellings, only for the new cave dwellers to be relocated, again, to nearby towns in the 1950s after the government came to judge living in caves as unprogressive. In reality, the caves had been reworked and extended over the millennia and were more like underground cities, perfectly respectable places in which to live. Anyhow, they are now a tourist attraction. A Maverick Middle Eastern Way You can read more about my adventures in the historical regions of the Middle East in A Maverick Middle Eastern Way, forthcoming in 2019. In A Maverick Middle Eastern Way, I continue my journeys eastward and to the south, into Iran, Israel, Jordan the Palestinian territories, Egypt, and Cyprus, to name a few places. I stayed in Banksy's Waldorf Hotel in Bethlehem and almost got arrested by Israeli defense forces while trying to enter the Dome of the Rock, got attacked after walking in on a guy taking a picture of his girlfriend sitting on a sacred altar, went to Hebron where a mosque was being used as a play center, interviewed Hezbollah in Lebanon, enjoyed the food in the Paris of the Middle East, and visited ancient temples. I went through immigration from the Greek-dominated Republic of Cyprus to Northern Cyprus. I drove past the first checkpoint as there was no one on duty on the Greek side, and got held up by the Turks for lack of paperwork. And I was climbing on Mount Ararat when I heard a Kurdish rocket take out a military post nearby. I've got a lot of blog posts about the Middle East on my website, a-maverick.com, already. Chapter 20. Teaching in London. I found a job teaching at a high school in Brentwood in Essex, north of London. I only had five students in my class, all of whom were clinically disturbed, and for the most part I did enjoy it. But it was tough. And before long I was dealing with issues not too different from those I faced when teaching in New Zealand. One boy threatened to hit me. I went to the principal and demanded that he be removed from my class, no one deserves to put up with that behavior in the classroom. Yet instead of the situation being resolved, the same boy bashed the principal. He was suspended for a week, but then a week later was back at school. In my class. I didn't sign up to be a cop without a weapon, at least the police have truncheons, and after a series of stalking incidents involving another student I left. Soho is one of my favorite places in London, full of food, jazz, music and interesting people. I had Jewish food for the first time there and loved it. But the problem with London is that from November it gets darker and darker. In the middle of winter, the sun sets before it is even four o'clock in the afternoon. I just hated it, it was depressing. The tube wasn't safe after midnight, so the nights were dark, long and boring. At least in the countryside you can go on full moon walks, look at the stars, ramble up mountains. But in an urban environment it's hard to survive being locked indoors every night for months. It was nearing November, and after four months I was ready to go home. Andy the saxophone player came with me for a little while. But he preferred the hustle and bustle of London to the quiet life in New Zealand. Chapter 21 New Zealand for another minute. In 2002, I created my own business training teachers. There was a huge shortage in Auckland and the language market in New Zealand had ballooned out with record numbers of non-English speaking immigrants. The quality of teachers available to teach English as a second language, ESL, was appalling. 
but I didn't just deal with the SL schools, there were also many private hospitality, computing and nursing schools too. Most of these schools were not regulated by the government and many schools went under owing lots of money to disappointed teachers and students. Since 1987 the fourth Labour government, under the guise of Roganomics, a free market economic plan, had discussed increasing the population of New Zealand to around 5 million as well as selling New Zealand land and citizenship to the world. Actually, this seemed like a plan to create a Malthusian sort of society that would benefit the landowner most of all. I remember being warned by my lecturers of the likelihood of a return to the Victorian era of low wages and homelessness. Starting a business at that time was tough. I'd paid Telecom, now Spark, $2,100 for advertising and an assurance that the internet would work from where I lived in Auckland. It turned out that the internet didn't work and all the money I spent on advertising went down the gurgler because I couldn't access the web. Contractors they sent out to the house were useless and pervy, they insinuated that special favors could get the internet up and running instantly. It was creepy. And disruptive to the business I'd just started. It took 12 years for telecom to fix the local exchange and get business quality internet in the area. I finally launched the business and it was hard yakka. I was working 70-hour weeks on average. It then became increasingly competitive because I believed in paying teachers $20 an hour, and charging them out at $28. Some of the other larger companies would pay their teachers $15, but charge them out at $28 an hour or more. There was more money in the margins but I wasn't prepared to pay my teachers less, let alone deal with language schools that didn't respect teaching staff. I diversified and started providing specialty teachers. I was poaching leading chefs from the hospitality sector and getting them into teaching roles. I started doing permanent placements and poached people from cold calling in different industries. I tended to make quite a bit more money that way. At one time, I had 60 or 70 people on my books. There was such a scarcity of teachers that I actually started training people. For people to get permanent residency they had to score a 6 in the English literacy test. But I believe it had a lot to do with the luck on the day. If you had an interest in science and the test that day was mostly science related then you'd probably be a New Zealand citizen. If the exam was about politics and your political knowledge was on point you'd generally get through it as well. The reverse was also true. Business migrants were welcomed into New Zealand if they had a million New Zealand dollars or its equivalent in their bank account. But this of course resulted in a number of scams being uncovered in which immigration consultants would just transfer money from one account to the next, collecting a fee for their efforts. My business was thriving. I was able to put away some money and buy another rental property in the up-and-coming but not quite there yet suburb of Point Chevalier in Auckland. The language school industry in New Zealand was in a fair bit of strife. Many courses were being created by untrustworthy and unprofessional people. Students were arriving, mostly from China, to attend language schools and stay with host families and there'd be no food, or substandard food, and no teachers. There were many language schools in the heart of Auckland that didn't even have a kitchen or a social area for the students to cook or sit down together. In spite of the huge shortage of qualified teaching staff, I found a few fantastic former teachers from secondary schools. I brought together a good crop of really qualified people who could draw up courses in subjects such as travel and tourism and accountancy, as well as ESL. Chapter 22 O Canada In 2003 I went with my friend Sam to Vancouver, Canada. He was originally from there and was taking me to meet his family. Sam lived with some friends in the small city of Chilliwack, just east of Vancouver. 
The night we arrived there was a Foo Fighters concert at an inner city venue called the Plaza of Nations. Before we headed off, Sam and his friends cooked a traditional dinner of tinfoil wrapped halibut with courgettes, carrots, garlic and tomatoes on the barbecue. I'd never had halibut before, it was delicious. It was my first night out in Vancouver and it ended up being quite the introduction. We were walking back to the car park after seeing an amazing concert, the energy level of the Foo Fighters on stage was infectious, when a guy approached us frothing at the mouth and holding a knife. We quickly moved in the opposite direction. Sam told me he was a drug addict trying to rob cars and get money for his habit. I was astounded. But drugs weren't the only problem. The city was being destroyed by high-density housing. In my opinion it made Vancouver look a bit like a slum. Or maybe that was just because the bit we had traveled through from Sam's place to the Plaza of Nations was mostly East Vancouver, notorious for being the rougher and less touristy part of town. I didn't realize how close we were to the USA. We drove along the border where you could see the boats coming into Canada from the United States of America. It was busy. And amazing. They had gondolas and railway cars that would take you up the mountain to the Whistler Ski Resort, so you didn't even need a car. Once you got to the top there were stacks of ski lodges, resorts and restaurants ranging from budget to fine dining. As amazing as Whistler was, there were a number of buildings being demolished. When I asked why Sam told me that they were all leaky buildings, just like they were building in New Zealand, I could have ripped my hair out. Vancouver had had this problem already, and now we were doing the same in Auckland, but that's another story. We hopped into a canoe to paddle down the river and I saw ravens for the first time. Such glossy back feathers make them beautiful birds. And smart too, they can cleverly steal food in ways you couldn't imagine. Sam wanted to take us to his father's place in a town called Hope, further inland from Chilliwack. Hope reminded me so much of New Zealand, particularly the Coromandel and the South Island, it's filled with waterfalls and dense bush areas. I'd known Sam for several years since meeting him in Sumner near Christchurch and I could now understand why he loved New Zealand's South Island so much. It reminded him of home. I lost hope in hope. It was supposed to be summer there and there was a five-week gale. But his father's place was gorgeous. He had twenty dairy cows on his property and hundreds of beautiful red hummingbirds flittering around. They're my favorite birds. Sam's dad used to put bowls of honey out for them and they would come inside and dart around the house. We headed to stay at Sam's mother's house on the optimistically named Sunshine Coast of British Columbia, north of Vancouver. The Sunshine Coast includes places with names like Desolation Inlet, which is the sort of name you come across in the remote sub-Antarctic southwest region of New Zealand known as Fiordland in English or the Atorhenua, the Shadowland, in Maori. However, the Sunshine Coast actually does get plenty of sunshine, as the long and mountainous Vancouver Island to the west intercepts most of the bad weather. I thought the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia was a beautiful place. Just like the Atorhenua but with more sunshine, and I could see why Sam's mother wanted to live there surrounded by native bush and armies of driftwood along the beach. Sam's brother was living there too, in a shed out the back. Sam's mother was really lovely, and I remember her making a Canadian beef delicacy for us. It was fattening but tasty. She'd smother beef in tomato sauce, sawn garlic and bake it on a low temperature. I still eat this dish now on occasion. Sam's brother was not only using marijuana but growing it too. And he had a semi-automatic AK-47 assault rifle for protection, which made me a lot more nervous than if he hadn't. We were out walking one day, 
and I casually mentioned that I'd love to see a black bear. Well the next thing I know Sam's brother runs away, returns with his gun and says he's going to shoot one. I was not impressed. I was astounded that it was just so normal to go out and shoot them. No one seemed bothered by it. You could get hunting permits there to go and shoot grizzly bears. I couldn't understand why. At least in some respects there was controlled hunting for grizzly bears. But you could shoot black bears whenever you saw one, just like how they shoot possums in New Zealand. I got to see the home that Sam and his family had grown up in. I was amazed because the house was sitting directly under low-hanging power lines, that wasn't good. While we were there it was Sam's 40th birthday and he had a big party with some friends and all his family. I got to meet his adopted sister and a close cousin who told me a lot about the challenges she faced being a social worker working with drug addicts. She said it was an almost daily practice to give addicts an injection that would disrupt their overdose and bring them out of their drugged stupor. She told me to be careful in Vancouver East where the drug problems had gotten quite bad recently. I told her I'd already had an introduction to it. We ferried to Maine Island and I learned firsthand what tree sitters were. A group of environmental activists were sitting in the trees protesting deforestation. I could understand why, the wildlife here was amazing. We saw a 500-year-old eagle's nest and black bears along the shoreline picking up rocks along the beach looking for shellfish. There was a nude beach on the island, but even thought I'd spent two years naked on the Chinese junk I wasn't keen to be perved on by creepy old men with saggy balls selling hash cakes. I kept my clothes on. And I stayed away from the crazies. We headed back to Vancouver and Sam went to visit friends, so I checked into a hostel. For some reason the hostel owners would change the locks on you all the time, it was very annoying. Even though I had been warned to avoid Vancouver East, that's where the cheapest hostel was, so I stayed there but didn't go out at night. The last thing I wanted was another meeting with a knife-wielding drug addict. But because I didn't feel safe, I didn't stay there long. I headed off on the train through the Rockies to Banff. It was a long trip, nearly a thousand kilometers, but it was beautiful. The train weaved through mountainous ranges, tightly packed forests and across crystal clear rivers. I couldn't have dreamed the scenery would be so incredible. The Rockies are utterly amazing. I found a place to stay half an hour north of Banff, in a small town called Lake Louise, which is known for its turquoise lake surrounded by snowy peaks. The Fairmont Chateau at Lake Louise was a luxury hotel famous for its uninterrupted view over the lake and the Victoria Glacier. It was gorgeous. I made friends with some Chinese tourists and we explored the local area together. I was blown away by the beauty of the Canadian wilderness. As much as I loved it there it was time to start heading to Vancouver to meet up with Sam and make our way back to New Zealand. Sadly, as dear as Sam was to me, I got to understand what living with an addict would be like. He had full-blown marijuana psychosis and would have his first joint at 8 a.m. in the morning, awake and bake. He'd top himself up during the day and by the end of our trip together I could see that it was damaging to who he was as a person. He'd become a shell, a very confused and deluded individual. I decided that I wouldn't travel with him again. Chapter 23 It's A-OK in the UK I was after a place that cost under $45 a night. I used a website called rates to go that was the Airbnb of 2008. It just goes to show how booking and travels change, you need to keep ahead of those changes to get good deals. The accommodation was okay until I started hearing rats at night, chewing through the floorboards. It was snowing when I was in London. In April. Not usually a month that brings snow. 
I hired a rental car for $21 a day because I acquired the deal outside of New Zealand. I was thrilled with the price for a fortnight but shocked when the congestion tax was charged. I got three fines and had to pay $260 in congestion tax. One of the most surprising discoveries in London was Churchill's War Rooms, an underground bunker around the corner from the Prime Minister's residence at 10 Downing Street. Churchill lived in the bunker while he was directing the United Kingdom's World War II efforts, complete with a map room and a cabinet room that was used 24-7. Apparently more than a hundred top-secret meetings were held here. I was blown away by this place, it still had the mattress he slept on and all the equipment they used in that era plus a map showing where his armed forces were stationed. But it didn't appear to be on the tourist radar. Many of my friends had never even heard of it. Being in London close to the West End was fantastic. I saw comedy shows, musicals and the wonderful Miss Saigon. And being just a short walk from snow-covered Hyde Park was amazing. Even though I'd been to London several times this was my favorite visit. It just goes to show that there's always something new to be discovered, even when you think you've done, and seen, it all. But I had itchy feet, again, so I embarked on a road trip. The plan was to head to Dundee, eight hours drive north, but I got lost on the A1 and ended up in Sherwood Forest, six hours south of where I meant to be. Naturally, I had to look for Robin Hood. The thing about Sherwood Forest is that there's an entire tourism industry built on the legend of Mr. Hood, so it didn't take long to find the major oak, the tree that allegedly hid the robber from his arch-nemesis, the Sheriff of Nottingham. There's some debate whether the steal from the rich and give to the poor stories dating back to the 1400s are real. Regardless, it's a great story. Recently it's been suggested that Robin Hood was a character that outlaws adopted, kind of like wearing a mask or a costume to conceal their true identity. Who did it? Why, Robin Hood did it. After a night in a log cabin in the forest I got up early and tried to get to Dundee. I say tried, because I got lost. Again. And ended up in Kendal, four hours south of where I'd planned to be. I headed north once more, figuring eventually driving in that direction would take me to where I wanted. But instead I ended up in the Lake District. Not quite all the way north, but somewhere up that way. The Lake District was like being in an Edwardian Beatrix Potter book, and funnily enough it was home to the famous children's author. Miss Potter stayed at Ray Castle in the region when she was 16 for a summer, which sparked a lifelong love affair with the countryside. And in later years she wrote many of her books from her farm here and they haven't stopped selling. Around two million books are sold each year, that's four books every minute. And I could see why she chose to write here, it's a peaceful and inspiring place. When Beatrix died, she left 15 farms and 4,000 acres to the National Trust, so, this area really is potter land, full of rolling hills, idyllic cottages and, of course, more lakes than you can shake a stick at. I had no idea that the United Kingdom had so many beautiful national parks. I'd always considered the country to be an urban society, so was delighted to see that the monarch, and the government, had gifted large tracts of land to be enjoyed by the public. I finally made it to Dundee, a week later, and was excited to stay with my aunt and uncle. I knew it was their house when I saw a sign saying Haramai on the garden gate. They're always so welcoming and hospitable, but their enthusiasm led to an evening of herbicide. We were at the local bowling club when my uncle started plying me, and everyone around us, with whiskey. Every time his back was turned, I sneakily tipped it into the plant. We were there for hours. Everyone was drunk on whiskey, including the plants. The next morning, 
I was so glad to not have a hangover I drove to Wales to continue my journey. Wales. My first stop was Langadog, situated in the Towy Valley. Wales is full of sheep and sheepdogs, and the local pub was full of sheep farmers. It reminded me of rural New Zealand. An hour south is Swansea, where I headed next. It is the second largest city in Wales after Cardiff. I loved Swansea. There was free internet in all the buses and libraries, which was still quite unusual in 2008. Oystermouth Castle was a particular highlight. Built early in the 12th century by the Normans it was captured, fought over, damaged and rebuilt many times over the centuries that followed. It was in ruined and decayed condition but still fascinating as being a center of local heritage. I understand it since had an extensive refurbishment so it would be nice to revisit one day and see how different it looks. I headed down the coast to Cornwall, stopping in Torquay on the English Riviera. It's famous throughout England for two reasons, it was the home of best-selling novelist Agatha Christie and the inspiration for John Cleese's most famous character, Basil Fawlty, based on a Torquay hotelier. I was surprised by how cheap property prices were in Torquay. For $240,000 you could get a beautiful house with an established garden. I even saw one property with New Zealand ponga, or giant tree ferns, survivors of the Carboniferous era of fossil antiquity. By English standards the ponga looks like something that belongs in a hothouse and probably does in Britain, anywhere outside of Torquay at any rate. Much more common throughout Britain is the New Zealand cabbage tree, a general term for several species of the genus Cordyline. These look quite a bit like the yuccas of the Americas, genus yucca, and are in fact distantly related. They are both members of the asparagus family, believe it or not. The name doesn't refer to the fact that the cabbage tree is edible and even quite tasty in parts, though it is stringy, and has to be boiled for hours, so much as to the fact that the cordylines look like a palm trees, which were just as often called cabbage trees in the 1700s. The expression cabbage tree died out as a name for true palms, but it survived as a name for cordylines. Though British settlers gave English names to the plants and animals they encountered in New Zealand, these often didn't last. The creature the settlers dubbed the parson bird, with its black plumage and little white neck ruff, eventually came to be known to all by its Maori name of the Tui. The white pine became the Kahikatea once again. And the world's southernmost species of true palm, also called cabbage tree for a while, reverted to its Maori name of Nikau. But the name cabbage tree has survived in New Zealand because of the similarity of the Maori name for cordylines, tea, to the English word tea. Adoption of the Maori name into Kiwi English would cause confusion, all the more so given that the settlers' name for the unrelated, medicinal, manuka was tea tree. The Australians also have something called a cabbage tree palm. But that's completely different. In Britain, cordylines are known as Torquay palms. The abundance of New Zealand cabbage trees in Torquay, where I suppose they first caught on in Britain, made me jealous because I had tried to grow one of a variety that caught my eye in Torquay in my own back garden in New Zealand, and failed. That was pretty ironic. After all the travelling and driving, I needed a quick family fix. So, I headed to Bath to see my cousin Charlie and his hunter beagle sniffer. Here they are, with a parrot on sniffer. Charlie was saving money and was operating a mini-sanctuary for neglected macaw parrots out of his house. Apparently during the 1970s it was fashionable to have a pet parrot in your lounge. Owners would clip, or break, their wings so they couldn't fly away, but after a few years when the fad died out hundreds of parrots were abandoned. 
They live for around 50 years in captivity so they're a lifelong responsibility. A local aviary had been looking after them but they'd run out of funding and space, so bird lover Charlie had taken them in. He had around a hundred birds, a handful of which were elderly macaws. Ireland after so much driving I decided to fly to Ireland to catch up with my friend James of the fluctuating weight, who'd in the meantime built a successful gluten-free sauce and cracker company in Limerick. Ireland has a buzz about it. The last time I'd been there the infrastructure was developing and Irish people were returning to Ireland. There were so many good things happening there in design, engineering, film, telecommunications and transport, despite Ireland being one of the most affected countries in the global financial crisis. Even so, the government had neglected the absolute basics in public finance, wage policy and bank regulation since before the new millennium. So, many people were still hard done by. My friend James's sources were becoming very popular, but it was hard work. James was driving the trucks about 60 hours a week just to meet orders, on top of everything else required to run a business. He'd put on weight once more due to a combination of stress and the sources, no doubt, and was exhausted. Ina and John, my friends from Bali, came to see me and we all went to see James's trade show at a five-star hotel. Afterwards we all went for dinner and there were some disheartening topics discussed. John said that he wasn't making any money with his dairying, mainly because his herd was so small, about a tenth of the size of New Zealand herds. And that amount would most likely be reduced once the European Union got rid of the subsidies. Nobody was drinking, which made quite a change from the last time I had caught up with my friends. While I was there, I made the decision to close down my business. I was owed a lot of money and after calling in all the debts I shut operations down. That was just in the nick of time. The recession happened and I managed to avoid losses. Luckily my properties retained their value. Chapter 24 All roads lead around Rome. I flew to La Rochelle, a small port city on the southwest coast of France, famous throughout Europe for its sustainability and student culture. I was staying with my ex Niels from the Elfchine. He'd been through a bad batch, he'd lost his job, his fiancée, and nearly everything in his apartment due to a fire as well. I felt very sorry for him. We spent a lovely few days together then headed to Paris to visit the old elf chine, moored on the River Seine since 1995 and now reverted to the name of La Dame de Canton. The junk owners had sold it to a buyer that turned it into a floating restaurant for a few years. And though we all thought the boat would one day go back to the ocean, the cost of getting it seaworthy was exorbitant. But it was river-worthy, hence its location on the Seine. Now it's a nightclub and party venue, available to PR companies and advertising agencies to hire. Being back on it brought back a flood of emotions and memories, I found it a bit sad that the junk was no longer sailing around the world. Neil's son and I danced all night on the junk at a house music party. Neil's didn't understand or enjoy the music, which made me laugh, in a sympathetic way. France at the time was suffering through the recession. There were huge levels of unemployment homelessness and crime, I had my iPhone stolen. I love Paris and there are a few places that I wanted to see while I was there. I had secured a hotel, which wasn't very nice at $40 a night. I spent the first day just walking through all the manicure gardens, so beautiful. I went to the famous Moulin Rouge, at $100 a ticket. What an amazing experience, the choreography, along with the dancers' outfits, made the stage appear to be a piece of artwork. The artwork changed along with the choreography as well as the dancers' clothes multiple times throughout the show. 
It was incredible and something I would go and see again. Anyway, I decided to do the museums and went to the Grand Petit Palais. I loved the artwork, especially pieces created during the Venetian period and the incomparable Leonardo da Vinci. Paris is full of beautiful artistic sites, so it suited me just fine. Italy. I'd always loved Italy, so I decided to do a little more traveling around one of my favorite countries. San Remo on the Mediterranean coast was the first stop, to catch up with another old friend who was working on super yachts. He had some pretty interesting stories of how the other half live, none of which I can reveal due to confidentiality, but you can imagine how ludicrous some of the demands were. A three-hour train ride north took me to Milano, Milan, where I spent some time with an Italian couple, Lorenza and Italo. We had met in Gann in 1982, so it had been years since I'd seen them. Lorenza's parents had come to Italy from Croatia, as refugees during World War II, they literally escaped with only the clothes on their backs. Italo had blonde hair and bright blue eyes back then but sadly he now had emphysema. However, we were so happy to see each other. He tried living in Cuba on a boat but got very disillusioned with Castro, even though he believed in the revolution. He'd become politically disenchanted. I was shocked to discover that in Italy, nuclear waste was being dumped off the coast and buried in the bush. Apparently, the Calabrian Mafia started disposing of toxic waste illegally in the 1980s, when few restrictions were in place and bribery was at an all-time high. The New York Times reported that cancer rates were up to 47% higher in the affected areas. They estimated that 10 million tons of toxic and nuclear waste were buried in Italy and Germany and that at least 30 ships full of radioactive material had been sunk off the coast. Many news organizations reported that the plan was to send the toxic products to Somalia for burial, but after paying off local politicians the mafia saved money on transportation and just stuck it in their own backyard. People said that some waste did make it to Africa. Warlords, bribes and illegal weapons trading were involved. No wonder the episode is called Italy's Chernobyl. You also can't help wondering what would have happened to the waste in Somalia, perhaps it would be fired right back at us by terrorists. Lorenza and Italo lived 30 kilometers out of the city in an area where Lorenza could ride horses every day. Her horse riding instructor used to work for Silvio Berlusconi and like the former prime minister had an eye for the ladies, even though they were both married. The instructor suggested we have an affair, but I wasn't interested. My friends took me to Brescia, about 90 minutes east of where they lived. It's an area famed for its ancient religious buildings, a round cathedral affectionately called La Rotunda, but actually named Duomo Vecchio, is the highlight. Built in the 6th or 7th century over floor mosaics that some say were part of Roman baths in the 1st century, it's a stunningly preserved piece of architecture, one of the few examples of a circular basilica still standing. Thousands of worshippers come to pay their respects each year and to celebrate the Catholic sacred mysteries, named after the theory that supernatural forces united with religious leaders to make sense of unexplainable events in the Bible. I revisited Lorenza five years later in 2013, by which time the economic collapse had become prominent and many Italian industries were closing down, Chinese ones were opening up. The locals were getting really, really annoyed. Also, the bribery under Berlusconi had gone beyond comprehension. A friend of Lorenz's niece told me a sad story about mafia interference. Apparently, her husband, a doctor, had been living in New York but was hoping to move back to Milan to raise their children. He'd applied for a surgical role, 
but the Mafia intercepted his CV and denied his appointment. The Mafia were so brazen, rather than just let him think he was passed over for someone more qualified or suitable, they actually called him and told him not to apply again. I still don't know why he was on their radar though. Probably a historical family thing. My gluten intolerance flared up in Italy. All the bread, pasta and sauces were sending my digestive system into panic. And I got pretty ill. I was almost vomiting, and gluten-free pizzas and pastas were hard to come by. Lorenza had tried to live in New York, as she was a successful designer. She worked for a design company and she used to get the work done in third-world countries where women needed the money. She was a really ethical employer. When I visited her in 2013, she took me to meet a guy who ran a vineyard and she helped ensure that mules and donkeys were bred in humane conditions. The EU subsidized the cause because the animals were regarded as part of Italy's heritage. Croatia The train ride from Milano to Triesa, the most easterly large city in Italy, just 15 kilometers from Slovenia, was only a short trip of five hours in total. In Triesa I caught a bus to Dubrovnik in Croatia, a trip that should have been pleasant. It wasn't. Some of the other people on the bus were really rough, I thought I was going to get beaten up. I loved Dobrovnik, it was absolute heaven. It was an old castle city on a port. I hadn't experienced that before, so the contrast between the 15th century stonework, fortifications and the turquoise waters of the Adriatic Sea was stunning. The Croatian currency of the Kuna was being stabilized with the euro around that time, so prices went up about 20%. The locals were not happy with the increase in food prices, but I thought it was still cheaper than other places I'd visited. And the food was incredible, beautifully fresh produce and amazing herbs and spices. From Dobrovnik, I got a ferry to the Miljet National Park, a long thin island not far from the mainland. The island was stunning, it's the oldest protected marine park in the Mediterranean, covered by a dense forest with little villages and a 12th century monastery. It was super cheap living in the park, you could get an omelette for a dollar. Anyone could live like a king here for a week. But the drunken boat crew would drop you out of the regal head zone pretty quickly. And they were the only option to get around, unless you could afford your own chopper. Bosnia and Herzegovina On the way to Serbia I found myself passing through Bosnia and Herzegovina. I met a 30-ish Indian woman on the bus who had a pink teddy bear and I asked her where she'd been traveling. I won big at the Las Vegas casino and I've decided to travel and write a book about my travels, she said to me. She had traveled through India on a train with more rats than passengers and it was her second time in Bosnia and Herzegovina. She loved her teddy bear and took it everywhere. I never took a train in India because of the story she told me. I don't like rats and I don't go where they are. I was quite shocked to find myself in Bosnia and Herzegovina because I hadn't planned on going there. I started thinking about all the images of the civil war on the TV between the Bosnian Muslims, the Croats, the Serbs and the Yugoslav army. Eventually I got to Montenegro, I didn't really like Montenegro. The beaches were cold and everything was closed down. I thought it would be early spring during April and May, but it was still as cold as anything. I felt like I was being followed so I took a hotel for $110 a night. The next morning, I couldn't wait to get to get out of Montenegro. The train ride out was scary. Half of the carriages were in complete darkness and there were single men sitting everywhere and because their boots had been worn in the snow there were puddles everywhere. I didn't want to be sitting with strange men in the dark, so I sat with families in well-lit ones. There was this one young guy in a soldier's uniform, he looked about 23. I turned around and said, 
How can you treat people worse than dogs? Why do you shoot people? He erupted. How can you criticize the army? I come from an officer's school I could arrest you right now. They breed like flies and we don't like the way they treat their women. We're sick of them. I was just trying to understand how they could hate people to the point where they were shooting them without justification or remorse. I hadn't realized that the Serbians had an officer training school in Montenegro. Serbia I finally reached Belgrade in Serbia and there was a presidential election campaign going on. One of the candidates, Boris Tadic, was more influenced by Western ideals and offered to be part of the EU. The other, Tomislav Nikolic was a lot more conservative and wanted a greater Serbia and was pro-Russian with his way of politics. It was an extremely tense time because of Kosovo's proclamation of independence from Serbia and the breakdown of the coalition government. I found being here challenging, I couldn't understand the street maps and I couldn't make sense of the Slavic language and the Cyrillic lettering, I couldn't find my way anywhere. I stayed in a youth hostel where the guy there loved the flight of the Concords. When he found out I was from New Zealand I received special treatment. At the time, in Serbia a lot of people wanted to be part of the EU and at that time they could only travel to seven countries. Now they're negotiating their EU accession. I met a guy here named Yuri who was in the army training to be an officer. He really wanted to leave Serbia, he said he wasn't happy there anymore. He took me to the bakeries and the food was disgusting, being gluten intolerant was a nightmare. Bit of pastry with spinach in it had become trendy around the world, the craze hadn't escaped Serbia either. Yuri was very keen to leave Serbia and asked if I had a niece he could marry in New Zealand. I visited one of the major forts there called the Golubac Fortress, a 14th century fortified town on the Danube River. During the Middle Ages it was the object of many battles, especially between the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary. It had been passed between the Turks, Bulgarians, Hungarians, Serbs, and Austrians, until 1867, when it was turned over to the Serbian prince, Mihailo Obrenovic III. I stayed about five nights in Belgrade and was completely impressed by it, in spite my other negative fears and feelings. Belgrade was surprisingly green with heaps of flowers. And there were so many wooden buildings and fences. Most places I'd been had medieval stone masonry, so it was nice to see something different. I wasn't expecting to like it but that's the lovely thing about travel, you never really know where you are going to enjoy things and where you are not. There was a drink made from sweet corn, a version of the famous Turkish boza, which I really liked even though it looked revolting. It was a frothy brown liquid that tasted amazing, if they'd put yellow food coloring in it would have looked much more appetizing. But I guess the Serbians were used to the way it looked. Serbia, and indeed the whole of the former Yugoslavia, have a turbulent history, from antiquity through to one of the bloodiest events in Europe since World War II, the Bosnian War. Under former Serbian and later Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic's rule around 100,000 people, mostly Croats, Bosnians and Muslims, were killed during a three-year period of ethnic cleansing. Milosevic was vilified in the Western media and eventually arrested and charged with war crimes. He died in prison in 2006, while still on trial an incredible five years after his arrest. One might have thought that the prisoner had gone to a just reward. Yet in a surprise ruling in 2016, Milosevic was exonerated by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague, while at the same time the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, Radovan Karadžić, was sentenced to 40 years in prison. It now seems that most of the atrocities and tortures perpetrated in the Bosnian conflict had been dreamed up by local militias as things spiraled out of control.
though the International Court of Justice had decided in 2007, already, that such a powerful figure as Milosevic should have done more to prevent what eventually happened. He had certainly helped to whip things up in the early days as well. It was quite difficult working out all the different currencies because many of these places were not part of the European Union at that time. I used the euro in Triesa, the kuna in Croatia, which it still currently uses despite being an European Union member, the dinar in Serbia, the euro again in Montenegro and the convertible mark in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which replaced the dinar in 1998.